Hi, KBT fans. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. We just want to take a second here to tell you about our Patreon campaign. Support from our listeners is what allows us to keep making this podcast. Because it turns out making a podcast requires money. So please, if you have a second, head over to patreon.com slash Talk, where you'll find bonus content for contributors. For our first bonus episode, we're doing a holiday special covering the 1999 Tom Cruise classic Magnolia, which, trust us, you do not want to miss. So visit patreon.com slash Talk for details. I have one note here that it's taken me the entire uh, recording session to remember what it was. I'm just going to throw it out now. Okay. I had written down spank me Luther. <laughs> so speaking of mission, missing missing punctuation, I was like, what, would, what was I doing last night? <laughs> well, Tandy Newton does Says, say. What are you going to do? Spank, spank me. me. And yeah. then Luther shows up and yes. is over their shit. But I've been trying to figure out what spank me Luther means. <laughs> All right, welcome to episode two of Kim and Billy Talk Mission Impossible, where this week we are talking about Mission Impossible 2 from the year 2000, directed by John Woo. Yes, and one thing that I will start off with right off the bat, because I work in publishing and this bothers me, I cannot find consistent spelling of Mission Impossible 2 anywhere. No, sometimes it's Roman. Sometimes it's just like the number two. Sometimes there's hyphens, sometimes there's not. Yeah. It's really... It's the Wild West here. Yeah. Um, okay, so we have a detailed agenda, and yes, we're going to we get do. into this. And I realize we just sat down and talked about the agenda, and I'm already <laughs> going to take a topic, because like, I got to get one thing out of the way first before you say it. Okay. So two weeks ago, I sat here and talked about how this is my favorite movie of, like, ever. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to say this right now. On the rewatch, this movie hates women. I can acknowledge that, and it is toxic in that way. Okay, you're giving me a look. I like actually don't think wrong. it hates women. Oh, shit. Okay, this is so exciting. I... So I okay no we do have an agenda and we're already getting <laughs> off base. That's but my fault. That's my fault. We we just talked about. That. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I hadn't seen this movie since whenever I first saw it, and um, as I've said in the previous two episodes, I didn't think that I was a fan, which was part of the reason why I couldn't remember it. And I don't know what I was doing as a 12 or 13 year old in the world, but I watched the movie this morning. So it would be real fresh for this podcast. And oh my god, I'm still so excited. I okay. loved it. So I loved it too. Here's the only thing. I just, I, 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 I sat here in your apartment and I was like, I love this movie. You're going to love it. And I'm sitting on my couch and fucking Anthony Hopkins is like, oh, go to bed with a man and lie to him. She's a woman. He, she oh, yeah. I'm like, that, that oh, was- teenage Billy. Damn it. <laughs> damn it. Okay. That's fine. We're going to get to this. This is great. There's going to be wonderful discussion. I feel less awful now. Why don't you take us into our agenda? Okay. So we are here. Definitely drinking cocktails, because that is the thing that we do now when we discuss this movie. Um, it is a on-the-rocks, just plain old delicious glass of whiskey. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know if this counts as a, as a cocktail. We're calling it the rock climber. So yeah. here's what you do. You get a glass, <laughs> you put some ice in it. There's your rocks. Yep. You put your favorite liquor in it. Then Call you... it the rock climber. <laughs> well, no, you put a little man in it who has a Chad tattooed on his ass. And right. then, so we're then using have... little rubber men. Yep. You can use a, a, a twist of lemon. Yep. You can use a maraschino <laughs> cherry. Whatever's going to make you happy, that'd be your little, your little rock climber. But there. the Kim and Billy trademark cocktail involves little rubber men. Yes. So. Yes. If you want to do it the proper show sanctioned official way, uh, get little rubber men. Yep. And you can see a photo of it on our Twitter. Yes. So um, I've already said that I watched the movie this morning um, because I did just want it to be as fresh as possible in mind. 
But you said that you had a Mission Impossible story. Does it involve watching the movie? Uh, yes, this is this is a non-movie watching Mission Impossible story for from from my week. So, okay. um, I am a, a student right now uh, in my final year of my program, and so uh, in in the grand tradition of people in their final year of their program, I tend to sit at the back mm-hmm. of most lectures and just quietly observe, mm-hmm. riding out my time there. Um, and I'm in this one evening class that I take it with uh, mostly the people who are a year behind me. And because of a variety of things happening at the school last year, I don't really know a lot of people from that year. Right. So I don't know them. They don't know me. I'm just a weird guy who sits at the back of the class and is very quiet. You doesn't raise his hand. Right. Exactly. So we have a guest lecturer uh, this week. And uh, he starts by asking a whole bunch of different questions. Right. So he's like, raise your hands if you plan on going into this area of practice. Uh, raise your plan if you're doing, or raise your hand if you're doing this joint program, blah, blah, blah. And he's going through all these very on-topic questions. Right. And then he goes, raise your hand if you saw Mission Impossible Fallout this summer. And from the back of the class, instead of raising my hand, I decided to answer by going, woo! <laughs> yeah! <laughs> Now, what happened? <laughs> I don't know why I thought anybody would find that funny, as one, most people don't know me, and two, certainly don't know I'm doing a podcast on Mission Impossible. Nope. So what happened was, stone silence, Oh no! followed by the guest professor going, all right, so uh, let's start oh talking about God. labor arbitration. <laughs> <laughs> it was. I just, I can, I feel embarrassed for you, like empathetic embarrassment. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so it's that weird thing where people across the room were looking at me. But the people sitting directly beside me were just staring intently on their notes. <laughs> uh, I like. I'm. I actually feel that in my chest right yep. now. So it's great. I just will not talk for the rest of the semester, and uh, that'll that'll be fine. Okay. So um, maybe this was a good segue into you know like being embarrassed in the classroom, surrounded by fellow students. Uh, when did you first watch this movie? I first watched this movie in the grand old year two thousand. Mm-hmm. Saw it in. Uh, theaters with a couple of my buddies. And then this ended up being one of the first DVDs that my family owned. Right. So, you know, at the time it was like a library of five movies. It was like this and maybe Star Wars or something. Uh, And so I watched this movie repeat like multiple times a year for probably all of high school. I'm just trying to remember right now what the first DVD my family owned was. It's an Anthony Hopkins movie, which is like fun. On point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he plays C.S. Lewis. Oh my gosh, what is that movie called? He was in a movie where he plays C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I said on the podcast last week that I watched Mission Impossible 1 on DVD. Shadowlands. That's what it's called. Uh, I've never heard of this movie. That movie will fucking break your heart. It is so good. And I still remember certain phrases from it to this day. And like that movie came out, I would have watched it when I was 13 or 14. Who else is in this movie? Um, Like Juliette Binoche, I think. Nope, wrong. Deborah Winger. Sorry, Deborah. Well, that's weird because that feels like a movie Juliette Binoche should be in and one Deborah Winger shouldn't be in. <laughs> okay, we're getting real off track. Real off track. But <laughs> okay, I, I'm going to have to look up this movie. Yeah, you should. Uh, so my family gathered around my DVD. mom's like laptop to watch it, and I remember being 13 years old and, and just devastated. And my family's first DVD was Mission Impossible 2, so <laughs> slightly different cultural upbringing. And yet we became friends anyways. Yep. There we go. Um, so, as I said before, I have no memory of watching this movie the first time. And do, I, do you think you saw it when it came out? or do you, I think, do, Is it possible you just missed it altogether? No, I think I did see it because 
Do Grey Scott was vaguely familiar to me, as was the car chase scene. I mean, and I don't want to be mean to Do Grey Scott because we're going to talk about him later. But yeah. like, if he is familiar to you at all, well, <laughs> probably ever after. for this movie. Come on, I was a 13-year-old girl. I completely (laughs) forgot he was in that movie. It was a few years before Mission Impossible 2 came out, and I have more things to say about this, but... Well, yes, because there's a reason why we didn't hear about him after Mission Impossible. Yeah. We're going to get there. We're going to try to keep it. Okay. All right. Mm. Stick it to the um, Yeah, I watched it this morning, and I just... I don't know what was going through my teenage head, but this was one of the best movies I have seen in a while. It was just so fun, and... We should actually tell people what happened in it in case they haven't seen it similarly yeah, since I just, they were. I just want to share my first mm-hmm. impression too because I'm so happy you feel this way because I have loved this movie for such a long time <laughs> and then didn't watch it for a while and then somewhere around like, I don't know, Mission Impossible 5, all these like listicles of the best Mission Impossible started coming out and everybody being like, oh, everyone's great except for Mission Impossible 2. Mission Which Impossible I don't get. I don't get it. Like I, I looked that up too right before you came over and I was like, it was critically well received when it first came out and it was actually the highest grossing movie of two thousand. Yeah, I, I did not know that. Yeah, and to put it in context, like two thousand is when Gladiator came out too. Yeah, two thousand was not a small year. Yeah. And so this movie like kicked ass at the box office and somewhere along the way I think people just like everyone at the time said, you know, this is a way better movie than Mission Impossible. Well, not everyone, but most Roger people. Roger Ebert did. Yeah, I did. I'll take that. You know how a, I feel about I Roger do. Ebert. Um, I love him just to make that clear. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, somewhere along the way, people just started making fun of it and like like all the slow-mo. Well, and, and there's, there's a lot of like easily trademarked. There are a lot of easy targets to make fun of here. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you and I are about to do that. But like I'm sitting here on my couch. I'm watching this movie. I'm expecting that I'm going to hate it and be like, uh, dumb teenage self didn't know what he was talking about. I fucking pumped my fist. I love this. It's I just great. the whole way through. I was like, oh, my God, how did I not remember any of this? And I was honestly a little bit entranced by Tom Cruise in this movie. Like he mm-hmm. is a little handsome in this movie. Okay. <laughs> I think it's honestly the swishy yeah. hair. Like his hair, it's magnificent. I was going to say this is the this worst film. his hair has maybe no, ever looked. No, disagree. Strong, right. hard disagree. His hair is beautiful. Well, I was entranced by... In, entranced. I was entranced <laughs> by Tandy Newton. I mean, okay, who, you know, she's who wouldn't be? Great in this movie. Well, the entire plot kind of hinges on our belief in the fact that the two main characters, Ethan Hunt and Sean Ambrose immediately fall in love with this woman and throw away their better judgment to protect this woman that they're in love with. And you know what? Yeah, of course. Yeah, Who wouldn't? It's Dandy Newton. All right. So if we're doing this, let's let's get right into the synopsis as right. you rightly suggested we do. Okay. So um, what happens in this movie for basically the first 30 minutes? Um, well, no, I'm going to back up and start again. Um, Set the very opening scene. The very opening scene takes place on an airplane. Oh, where we're not even there yet. I want to start in the lab. Okay, With Vladimir. Go. So here's what I like about this movie. Mm-hmm. Mission Impossible 1, legendarily complicated plot. Yeah. This movie is so straightforward. It's fantastic. Yes. And I love that in the first... the fr- Okay. You know, so it opens with our, our scientist friend, Dr. Vladimir, mm-hmm. talking about this virus that they have created. Setting up the mythological premise of this film. And what I love is that it feels like the bad sci-fi I was writing in grade seven, <laughs> where like the first paragraph had to get my like great sci-fi idea. Like, okay, so there's there's a spaceship and it can jump in space, but then there's another spaceship. And he's like, all right, listen, here's how it is. There's Chimera, okay, Chimera's bad, but then there's Bellerophon. Bellerophon's good, okay? We tried to do something good, but then we made a mistake. Go. And there's 20 hours, Ethan, and get me to Atlanta. And I don't know why Atlanta is so funny, 
for me as like the coda to that great mythological story. But is that not where the Center for Centers for Disease Control is? Okay, whatever, Billy, right. Mister Know It All. Take away the fun of Atlanta. They don't uh, explicitly say that, well, I, so I defend my I Atlanta. Think Impossible Two has a high opinion of its <laughs> audience. Shut up. But so it's kind of great. You get a you get a great beautiful setup. We got like bad virus, good cure. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna try and transport them. You know, I will jump ahead a little bit and say uh, I, that's so deliberate, obviously. And in fact, Luther later on in the film makes a joke about it. He's like, "That's so, simple, huh?" Yeah. <laughs> so this movie starts. Our scientist friend steps outside with the disease. Yep. And this is where I started to have doubts. I was like, "Was I wrong all along?" He sees these kids singing "Ring, Ring Around, Around the, the Rosie." Rosie. And then, you know what, it's not just that, because you know what, fine, let's be a bit dramatic, let's put a little poetry into Mission Impossible. Slow-mo black and white. I know. <laughs> like, and like am I watching Schindler's List Their right colors now? mesh across the screen, it's a, it's a little weird. So, yeah, if you haven't figured it out already, children are going to die if something goes bad in this movie. Yes, plague overtones from minute two of the film. So now we cut to the airplane, and you know what, maybe the reason why my brain immediately went there first is because... I'm I'm standing by it. Damn, Tom Cruise is attractive in this movie. He sits down. He is just beautifully tanned. His hair is just silky and sheen. And his eyes, they just glow. So I'm not going to fight you on the on the tan. He looks great with a little sunshine on him. I happen to like the more like military crew cut Tom Cruise. Okay, so you know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to add ranking Tom Cruise's haircuts okay, so to this. Look, I'm, I'm going to put personal bias on the table here about the hair. Okay. You have never seen pictures, but you are aware that I had longer hair listeners, in my high school days. Yes. So, listeners, have it be known that once I was over at Billy's childhood home for a family-hosted meal, and his sister told me that a photo was available of him with hair upstairs, I immediately start going, and I swear to God, it's the closest that Billy and I have ever come to a physical fist fight. Yeah. <laughs> so, my attempt at this Tom Cruise hair... Resulted in some bad years for me. So this is this is a sore spot. <laughs> but I, I will I will cede this point to you if if you are that into the hair. All right. But he's yes, he's he's looking good. That's the cat. That's Penny. Hello, Penny. Penny is the official cat of the podcast, as the, you are well aware. The only cat of the one. podcast. That's right. Yeah. Official and only. Yep. Um, so what I think also made uh, Tom Cruise so captivating in that opening scene, which we find out at the end of the scene, is that it's actually not Tom Cruise. It's his evil rival, Sean Ambrose, who is wearing a mask to make him look like Tom Cruise. And so that's, I think, a part of the reason why Tom Cruise is a little bit more wolfish than we're used to seeing him. Did you like Sean, uh, did, Sean Cruise? <laughs> did you like Tom Cruise playing a villain here? I did, actually. Okay. It was just, I think, for the pure he's having fun like element you can sense that coming off the screen yeah so basically our scientist friend gets on the plane with a person who looks like tom cruise thinking it's ethan hunt yep asking to be safely transported as we find out midway through the flight uh-oh not tom cruise no and in fact the not tom cruise is uh sean ambrose he's yes. a former mif or just cia he, he is imf he's he's impossible mission force right and so he is now the second high-ranking IMF member in this series to turn evil with no explanation. They, Ethan will later describe Sean Ambrose with one of my favorite lines in the movie. If, if you want to know how evil he is, he's yep. going to say, Sean doesn't think he's done the job until he's left a lot of hats on the ground, which is great. <laughs> what does that even mean? 
I think it means you shot a lot of people and their hats have fallen off, but not a lot of people are actually wearing hats in this movie, so... No, it's a weird, weird metaphor. Well, maybe there was. So in the first cut of this film, it was like three and a half hours long, and they had to whittle it down to the two hours that it is now. So maybe there were a lot more people wearing hats in the whole side plot's about buying hats, and it just couldn't make the final cut. We just don't know. Yeah, so, okay, let me ask you this. Last week, you weren't crazy about the mask special effect. So much better in this movie. And now they've got the voice. It's the first time we see the voice modulator or whatever they call it in yeah. the movie. It was great. It was pretty great. Yeah. I like, you have the shot of, of, of Sean Ambrose with his Sean Ambrose face, but he's still talking with Tom Cruise voice. Yep. Which is pretty funny. It was good. Um, and that's something that we all talk about, I think, going forward, but how deliberately cast, uh, um, what is it, Dugray Scott is in this movie? He kind of looks like Tom Cruise, and he's supposed to be like a weird parallel to Ethan Hunt throughout the entire movie. So we'll come back to that. Why don't we talk about this right now? Because if people know one piece of trivia about Mission Impossible 2, it's often the Duke Ray Scott world's saddest story ever. I know, and I actually didn't know this fact until so, I was looking it up this morning. You clearly know the pre-Mission Impossible 2 Duke Ray Scott story. Yeah, he's what Prince was he Henry. in prior to this? Prince, well, he was in other stuff, but like okay. he, he was known for being Prince Henry in Ever After, which is still a movie I watch when I need to pick me up. That's the Drew Barrymore one, right? Yeah, the Cinderella version of that. It's a great It's movie. a great film. Angelica Houston, she just shines. And she's like palling around with Da Vinci? Or, yep, that, it's okay. great. So, Duke Ray Scott... Very charming actor, cast Very to handsome. be uh, Wolverine in this risky chance that Fox was taking on the X-Men series. Yep. And then Mission Impossible 2, just the production is delayed, forcing Dugray to drop out of the X-Men universe and lose the role of Wolverine to Hugh Jackman. I'm so torn on this because as much as I like Dugray Scott, I, I just don't think he's as well suited to it as Hugh Jackman is. No, like, it was meant to be. But but the poor guy. Like. I know. And did you know at one point it was um it was between him and Craig, uh, new James Bond, him Daniel Craig. Yeah, him and Daniel Craig. Like for Wolverine? No, for James Bond. The Duke new James Scott Bond. was going to be James Bond. Well, he was one of the like runners up, like one of okay. the people in contention for the role. And like ultimately, I will say I think the best casting decision was made for each film, but. God, if you're Duke Ray Scott, how do you not see all the Wolverine stuff everywhere and just feel angry or sad every single time? To miss out on Wolverine and then to miss out on Bond, that's a that's a life blow. dealing you a, a tough <laughs> rough hand. hand. So, so what, what has he done since? <laughs> not a lot. Yeah. Okay, we'll come back to this in the, in the Duke Ray Scott corner. Okay. Anyway, he's great in this movie. He's so good. People, put Duke Ray Scott in more things. Yes. Um, and uh, what happens after the... So the medicine... Oh, my God. So the disease has been stolen, and now we cut to... Well, no. Wait. Okay, so this is important. Vladimir steals the cure for the disease, and he injects himself with the actual disease. Yes. So Sean Ambrose steals the cure... He doesn't realize that the disease is inside the scientist. Instead, he kills the scientist with a karate chop. Yes. Leaves him to crash on the plane. No, he doesn't kill the scientist with a karate chop. He breaks his neck, which before it's revealed that it's actually Sean Ambrose, you still think it's Ethan Hunt. And you're like, damn, that's cold. And then you're like, oh, and it's the evil rival. Right. So they leave the disease. They don't get the disease. They only have the cure. And that is because the disease can only be transported through a live incubator. Is that right? And it's like 20 hours before the disease is I don't is know realized. if it can only be transported that way or if that's the only way he felt safe doing it. Either way. Either way. 
they don't get the disease. They only get the cure. Yep. And then they jump off the plane. They let the plane crash. And then the camera cuts to Utah, the, the lone, wild, beautiful cliffs of Utah. And then... And already I'm so fucking happy. I know. It's so great. And so like you're just having this huge expanse of this red desert landscape. And then you see this tiny, tiny thing, which the camera just zooms in on, zooms in on. And then all of a sudden it's Tom Cruise on a giant rock face, no harnesses, just free climbing. And instead of like pounding, tension building, classical cinematic music, you get what is maybe my favorite song ever, which is just... It's like, hey, hey, come my way. And he's climbing up. So that song has been in my head for, I guess at this point, 18 years. Anytime yep. I have a good day and walking down the street, that song is playing in my head. If you're having a conversation with me and my eyes kind of glaze over, it's because I'm just playing that song in my head. And I totally get it. It totally makes sense because it's such a great scene. And even with that music in the background, like he does this incredible junk from another cliff. He ends up sliding. He ends up hanging on one hand. And then he just like gently throws himself into a cross position. I think they called it the iron cross or something. He just hangs there. And I was thinking about this. We were talking about, you know, last time the descending from the ceiling on on the wire thing is like so iconic. But maybe the series has repeated this move a lot more because he's he's, he's going to climb the Burj Khalifa in Ghost Protocol. Yep. Fallout has a big rock climbing scene. Yep. This is like, this becomes Ethan's thing. It's, well, it's climbing shit. Yeah, and I don't think you're wrong. And I think what makes this climbing scene so iconic, it's the first time that I think an audience was like, oh my God, Tom Cruise might die. Because right. this was really well publicized before the movie came out that John Woo basically like lost his shit with Tom Cruise over doing this stuff. Yeah, he wouldn't, John Woo wouldn't even watch like <laughs> the filming of these scenes. He was so nervous. Like, I think John Woo has a fear of heights. And so he was on the ground <laughs> for all of this. Well, Tom Cruise is 2000 feet in the air. He was wearing a harness for some of these stunts. Like, let's like Tom Cruise, I don't think is an insane person. He isn't a professional rock climber. And I, and I do think there was a stunt double for certain parts of it. Yeah. And I feel like that poor guy's job has been erased. No, it totally because. has been. I think didn't Ben Stiller do a spoof on this? Yes, well, they did. We'll come back to but, that. But so, like, the famous statistic is like Tom Cruise did. It's like ninety five percent of what you see yeah. on scene. But but like the jump that he makes from the other cliff, he might have been wearing a harness. But I don't care if you're but, wearing but a Tom harness. Tom Cruise did that part. He did the jump. He did it repeatedly until they got the shot. Did right. Did Tom Cruise do the part where he loses his grip and falls down the rock face? I'm. I feel like I that, don't actually know, but I feel okay. like he would have done it because he wanted to do. Everything. He was not insured, I'm pretty sure, for most of this. Either way, it looks amazing. It's so good. And just when he's hanging there and he looks into the camera and he doesn't really smile, but you can tell no, he's he having weird, fun. I, I don't want to make things weird. It's like almost like a sex face he's got on. He's <laughs> like, yeah. So this is where Billy sees <laughs> Ethan's sex face. I see it in the wolfish grin. You right. see it in the, <laughs> the, the iron cross position. <laughs> Well, anyway, it's anyway, so good. Yeah. And then he just pulls himself up the cliff and then a helicopter comes, throws him a cool pair of Ray-Bans. Well, so here, no, 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 no. Not Ray-Bans. Not Ray-Bans. Because okay. here's what I was going to say. The rock climbing scene, I'm like, this is so timeless. This is just amazing, cool. You could put this in a movie now. He gets to the top and this becomes the most year 2000 scene that has ever happened because suddenly the theme kicks in and it's new metal. Oh my it's God. like distorted electric guitar. And then the guy fires 
through a rocket a pair of Oakleys. <laughs> Very 2000s Oakleys. Obviously Oakleys. And so he's I put- will concede that point. I didn't notice the brand, but oh, the no, music. No, no. That- I noticed the brand because every punk 12-year-old in the year 2000 had that identical pair of Oakleys. I was clearly not a punk 12-year-old. I was an aspiring punk 12-year-old <laughs> who could not afford Oakleys. <laughs> Quick detail that I love. So you noticed. They, they shoot the Oakleys to him out of a little rocket launcher mm-hmm. from a guy in a helicopter. The guy in a helicopter in Utah is wearing a suit. <laughs> so I have at times worked a job that requires me to wear a suit. Mm-hmm. Anytime there's an excuse for me not to wear a suit, I'm like, oh, it's above 20 degrees. I'm not going to wait. You know, like, yeah, I choose to get out of it. You think this guy who's going on the helicopter can be like, you think I can do this in like jeans and a t-shirt? Like, <laughs> No, he's delivering a message to Ethan Hunt. He is suited up. <laughs> Never a last moment to suit up. Yeah. So he's at the top of the mountain. And he gets his next super spy mission. And as the mission is being relayed to him, first of all, I noticed just what a difference a few years made in the world of special effects. The like it was such a jump from when Mission Impossible, the first film came out, to this movie. Like it actually looks good. It's obviously not as cutting edge as technology today, but you see through the glasses, you just it was impressive. And it's a it's a lot more practical effects in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like I, I they're not pushing beyond what they're what they're capable of. Yeah. And like even just the masks. The masks looks great, as we said before, but yeah. like it was really, I think, the glasses coming in. I was like, wow, they've totally upped their game. I don't know if that's because The Matrix came out in 1999 and everyone was like, oh my God, we have to aim higher, people. Well, so this was, this was something I was thinking of as, as I was trying to put together like the timeline that, that The Matrix and Crouching Tiger are the year before. Is that right? I think you're right, actually. Because I don't know Crouching Tiger. The Matrix is 1999. Certainly for me, I remember those being like the first time I was exposed to kind of like Hong Kong style action filmmaking. And obviously, you know, the Matrix is a very American movie, but it has Hong Kong fight choreographers there. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon came out two months after this movie, Mission Impossible. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. So I've got it all wrong. Well, then The Matrix, I remember being the first mm-hmm. time um, being exposed to that. And like, you'd have friends with older brothers who were like, nah, that shit's dumb. What you want is John Woo. Like, you want to go mm-hmm. rent The Killer, which is like a, a different style of Hong Kong action filmmaking that's like full of guns and, yeah, you know. But it's also like John Woo as a director is, like, I don't know. I think he's more like Wild West than anything else. Yeah, but there's still, like, like at the end of this movie, it it becomes a very martial arts kind of thing. And I remember this being, like, one of the earlier opportunities to kind of, like, feed that hunger that came after The Matrix of of people doing a a different style of action filmmaking. Yeah. And part of that being why I like this movie so much. So... I don't know if this is an absolutely true fact. I found it on the internet enough times to think that it is true. But John Woo almost wasn't the director for this movie. Cruz initially went back to Brian De Palma and asked him if he wanted to direct the sequel. And De Palma Palma said no. So this is interesting. What what I read was that John Woo is the only director who hasn't been asked back. Yes, I read that too. Right. Which is... Kind of heartbreaking because I actually, like last week we talked about, you know what, Credence to Mission Impossible, the first film, because it's the first one in the series and it establishes the tone of the franchise. Wrong. I take it back. I think this is the first true Mission Impossible movie Mm. that defines the rest of the franchise. Okay. I don't know if I totally agree with that. I'm going to save my thoughts on this until the end, but 
but noted. You can't see, but I'm doing like a martial arts, like come at the, me, the bro. Karate. I I said last week I felt the Mission Impossible one felt like there was a Brian De Palma half and a Mission Impossible half, and they didn't mix quite as well. Mm-hmm. The last half of this movie feels entirely like a John Woo movie to me with almost no Mission Impossible in it. And even though I love this movie, clearly a lot more than Mission Impossible <laughs> 1, I, I was missing, like, there are no gadgets in this movie. It's very self-serious. There's there's not a lot of the comedy I kind of like. So I, I felt myself kind of missing some... Okay. Some franchise elements. I disagree with most of those points. I do think there are gadgets <laughs> yeah, in this film. Everything I said is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but I also think what does... So this is not the defining film of the franchise. I think maybe what happens... Oh, this is kind of related to um, the Shadowlands movie, but there's a refinement with <laughs> okay, each new film. Okay, wasn't expecting that to come that comes back. Out. Okay. It's all coincidental. It's all tying together. Um... But the first 30 minutes of this movie, aside from, so we've got the scientist, the plane, the fucking awesome cliff scene. Yeah. And then we have this weird, like, basically 20-minute interlude of Ethan Hunt romancing the new team member that he has to recruit for the next mission. Okay. I want your thoughts on this. Because this is, again, where I thought I was going to have problems. But there's one thing I want to point out there. Because I've been trying to argue that there is actually character development for Ethan Hunt throughout this entire thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that when we pick back up in Mission Impossible 2, he is alone. He's still thrill-seeking, mm-hmm. but he doesn't want to get anybody else hurt. So he's not hes not with an instructor. He's not with a guide. He's like, I'm just going to do this myself. Well, he's technically on vacation in the opening shot. Sure. But like, he hasn't hired a buddy you know, to like, but rock that makes climb sense to me. I think Ethan Hunt is a lone wolf, and so like you're right in that he doesn't want anyone else to get hurt, and so that That's is why he isolates. Yeah. Yes, but anyway, then I just thought that was interesting. In Mission Impossible One, we're introduced to him with all his buddies, and this time I think like after kind of the pain he suffered last movie, he's like he's learned his lesson. Yeah, maybe it's easier don't don't risk other people's lives. Okay, so that makes this extra interesting then because I, I don't think you're wrong now that I'm thinking about it. And um, so he's decided he doesn't want to attach himself to other people because he doesn't want to go through the suffering and pain of losing friends and people that he Dear loves. Dear sweet Emilio. You can't, <laughs> Emilio. You can't handle that again. <laughs> and then instead, the next 30 minutes are him falling in love with Tandy Newton and deciding to send her into his enemy's arms. So how did you feel about their flirtation? Okay, after the like really awkward romance of Mission Impossible, I was I was tentative going into this movie. I was just not sure what to expect. And I swear to God, that flamenco scene when they spy each other across the room, I was here for it. I was like, you guys are doing great. This so, is cheesy, but it is fun. By the end of the movie, I was totally into their relationship. And what broke my heart is that apparently she was asked to come back for future entries. And she was going to be a member of IMF going forward. Right. And she was kind of like, thanks, but no thanks. No. I know. But the opening scenes were there in Spain. They're, they're t- it, it felt a lot like them trying to do a James Bond kind of moment. Like when they're in the bathtub and he's kind of like, the, the like dialogue sitting on is his so face. Cheesy. Like it's very weird. And she's like, do you mind if I'm on top? And I'm like, I want this out of my James Where Bond. Where he says, I do what I'm told. Yeah. I was like, I like my Ethan Hunt to be like clean cut and American values. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that is an American value, seducing the attractive person. I guess. Yeah. I, I, I liked it. It was okay. cheesy, but it was like the kind of cheese that I'm here for. Just like it's popcorn. So 
they go do that. Then they get they they do something that they I swear this we is need stolen. to pause. We yeah. haven't actually explained what the mission is and why Ethan needs to recruit. Naya. Well, but he doesn't know that yet because um, he get he gets the glasses and the glasses say you can pick any two members of the team, but the third member has to be Naya oh, Nordoff. Right, right. Who is because this is going to be important. Mm-hmm. He thinks he's recruiting her. Naya is a master thief. Right. He thinks he's recruiting her for her skills as a thief. So yes. he just goes after her that way now. He doesn't really have a conversation about recruiting her so no. much as he has <laughs> premarital sex with her. Which I was gonna ask, is this the first time we see Ian Yep. We see Ethan actually like in the boudoir. Well, he makes out with uh Kirsten's ear in the first movie yeah. and then he sort of Did you notice that in this movie there's a lot of jaw touching? That's like his move. He's always touching jaws. I don't, it's I don't, very intimate, Billy. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't direct it. Um, I didn't really notice the jaw touching, um, but yeah, I I believed it. I was like, these two people care about each other. And then comes the twist when we see Ethan after they've had a lovely night together. I feel like this is something I am absolutely paraphrasing from Amy Nicholson, but Ethan Hunt of the first movie would have punched himself in the face before saying, damn, you're beautiful as pillow talk to sure. a woman. Sure. And that's what he says to Tandy Newton. Okay, but Naya. so- what do they do? What What's his big move that gets her so into him that they go sleep together? They have a car chase through Which the is Spanish stolen hillside. from Goldeneye. You're not wrong. You're not I, wrong about like, that. Is this how people romanced each other in the late 90s? They would <laughs> get into car races Let's in almost the highways die. of Europe. Let's yeah. play chicken. Who anyway, loves each other I first? I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. Um, good. But so, yes, they hook up, they get together, and then Tom Cruise is like, oh, I guess I actually have to go to work. He walks around, um, I guess, I don't know where they I are think in it's Spain. Seville. Seville. The, he walks around Seville, huge, goofy smile on his face. I mean, who oh, wouldn't have that smile? There is no mistake. He should be walking in, and Commander Swanbeck, yeah. Anthony Hopkins, should just be like, <laughs> Oh, you son of a bitch. Did you sleep with her? Like, he's being very obvious about But what's instead, going on. Swanbeck masterminded it all because. Yeah. Now we learn the mission, which is, you know what? You explain it. Mission is, you got to go after Sean Ambrose, mm-hmm. who went rogue, killed Vladimir, now has the cure. We need it back. Your way in is his ex-girlfriend, who is, dun-dun-dun. Naya. So you're going to convince Naya to go hook up with him and feed you info so that you can bring down Sean Ambrose. So um, actually, speaking of film, perhaps not stealing, but I'll call it an homage. So there was a golden eye, but the plot of sending, you know, making one spy love a woman and then sending that woman into the arms of her murderous ex, that's actually like the Hitchcock film Notorious. Yeah, it's so. So this is kind of interesting. This is this is very different from the other missions because one, it's. From this point out, it's basically all going to take place in one location. Mm-hmm. It's going to take place in, in Australia. They're not going to be jumping around. Um, mostly in Sydney, although Tom Cruise and his team, who we'll talk about in a second, mm-hmm. um, seem to be in the outback, which actually doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Like You'd want to be a couple of blocks away from Sean's house so that if something <laughs> goes wrong, you could be right there. I you so. But then you don't get the stunning Australian outback, right. which a, again, I think is a John Woo thing where there is an element of the Western yeah. in his movies. Yeah. And so you can tell me a little, you have spent time in Australia. Yes. I lived in Perth for a year, for anyone who cares. Is it, based on where their safe house is, how far away do you think they are from Sean's house? Way too far away to do anything useful. 
like it would take several hours to get there, right? Probably like even if you a had a helicopter, day. a day. Okay, I thought that was odd. But yeah. anyway, so one, they're going to all be in one location, and and two, I I said last time I I made a rather pretentious Jean Le Carré comparison between <laughs> like the the relationships going on in Mission Possible One, but this one actually feels very much like a George Smiley novel, where Tom Cruise isn't so much the dashing spy as he is the spy leader like mm-hmm. he is he is running a spy an undercover agent from his safe house and it's 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 a very different dynamic that we see from him from from a lot of the rest of the series well for me it wasn't so much that he's even he is running the team but it's more like IMF has acknowledged that Ethan Hunt will not be placed on a team formally ever again it's like he's like by himself but here's the support that he needs mm. to complete the mission this is so this is the only Mission Impossible movie where he's not on the run from his own agency. This is the only one where he just gets a mission from his boss and really? carries it out. Yeah. Oh man. I if, if Fallout is close. Is he run, is he on the run from IMF in Ghost Protocol? IMF gets disbanded in Ghost right, Protocol. Right, right. So he's doing his own thing. Yeah. Um, let me ask you a question about the agenda. Ready? Are we saving our favorite quotes to the end? No. Okay. Because there's Anthony Hopkins in this movie should have gotten a fucking Oscar. I know exactly what line you're going to say. say. It's wait, wait, wait. I want to get the wording exactly right. I wrote it down. I loved it so much. It has the appalling line of go to bed with a man and lie to him. She's a woman. She has all the training she needs. Yeah. Awful. No, that, that where you said before you were worried that, oh my God, this movie hates women. That line of dialogue is a piece of garbage. That's trash. But like, we'll just say that Swanbeck with his stupid name. Yeah. He's trash. Yes, he is. But then he has the best line in the movie. Yeah. Go ahead and say it. Mr. Hunt, this isn't Mission Difficult. Yes. It's Mission Impossible. <laughs> difficult mission, should be a walk, walk in, in the, the park. park for you. <laughs> it's so good. I loved it so much. Fun fact, did you know that Ian McKellen was actually supposed to play Swanbeck and he decided not to? Okay, so and you and I read goodness. the same IMDb trivia page. <laughs> yes, thank goodness, because what would have happened to him? He wouldn't have played Gandalf and he would have lost out similarly on the X-Men universe. He wouldn't have been able. So because he said no to Mission Impossible 2, he went on to be to Magneto. and Gandalf. Yeah. Um, would that have meant that Anthony Hopkins would have played Magneto? No, I don't think he was ever up for it. I can't see Anthony Hopkins as Magneto. It. Yeah. <laughs> Ian McKellen is Magneto, I should probably be clear, is yes. my favorite comic book casting ever. Oh. Hmm. Ever. Without question. I, I think it's... I don't know that I have an answer to that. Even in the worst of the X-Men movies, Ian McKellen as Magneto gives us... St- Stunning performance. Oh, he's fantastic. He's on fire in X-Men 3, which is an objectively terrible movie. <laughs> anyway, that is neither <laughs> That'll be the there. next podcast, <laughs> the X-Men universe. But so Ethan gets the mission, then he has to go to Naya and and pitch it to her. And I actually, I, th- I thought this was a really great scene. So this is also where um, I immediately disagreed with what you said at the outset was, oh, this movie hates women. I actually think Tandy Newton, like she's given like a very stereotypical role, but- she pushes back against that. Both her character does, and I think oh she, God. the actor, does. I think you and I have the same... I'm predicting we have the same favorite scene in the movie, but I don't want to say anything more because yeah. we're going to get there. I'm going to oh, get yeah. But yeah, it's interesting. I, she does the coolest thing I've ever seen in a movie where he, he pitches her on this, and then she like kind of silently walks out and snuffs out a candle, not with her fingers, but with her entire palm. <laughs> I've never seen that. That was really cool. <laughs> I wonder if the scene immediately after that cut from the film is her going, ow! Medic? <laughs> We get some we hope you're okay, on Tandy. Set. <laughs> um, 
this is, I, I want to get into an exchange they have because this walked the line for me of, I can't tell if this is the best thing I've ever seen or the worst thing I've ever seen. And then after this scene, I think I just gave into the movie. I was like, I'm not even going to like challenge it. Yeah. He says, okay, here's the mission, blah, blah, blah. You got to go sleep with your ex and give us info. And she's obviously like, hey, prick, that sounds awful. Yeah. And he says, would it make you feel better if I said I don't like this any better than you? And she says, mockingly, much. And he goes, then feel better. (laughs) (laughs) And he's so intense doing it, like veins are popping. And I just couldn't tell. I was like, wait, was was that an amazing exchange or, or like a terrible cheesy exchange? Here's the thing. I have only watched this movie once, basically in two decades. And had I watched it again before this podcast recording, my opinion might have changed. But I have this theory that it's the first time you ever see a big movie like that, especially if you see it in theaters, your first reaction is the true reaction. Because if you go back and rewatch something, then you're able to pick out, oh, that's a bit dumb. But the first time you're just excited and you're just watching it. And so my reaction about that scene was just, that was awesome. Yeah. And then as I'm questioning it, Tandy Newton gives what might be the second best line of the movie, which is he goes, I'm going to need you to arrange some serious trouble. And she says, serious trouble I can always arrange. And I was like, (laughs) all right, no, fine. I'm in. I'm done. Like, I'm done questioning. Whatever you're doing works for this movie and I'm into it. Yeah. And then it just kind of takes off from there. Yeah. And so the next big plot point, I think, is them figuring out how to get Naya into Sean Ambrose's circle again, which is arranging for her fake arrest, which is broadcasted around the world. And I was actually a little sad that we don't get to see uh, Naya's rescue scene arranged by Ambrose, but rescue her, he does. It's very weird. It's like, I guess he bribes the Sydney police. Like, they don't break her out. She's just on a speedboat. With a neck, uh, sorry, a, a scarf, scarf flowing, <laughs> flowing it, behind her neck. Beautiful shots of Sydney in this movie. Oh, it's it, gorgeous. It, yeah. It's it, a stunningly made film. And like, I can see maybe where some of the criticisms towards the movie come, where her approaching Ambrose, it's very long. It's a lot of slow motion. The scarf is just way too long and to the be scarf practical. flies off and he, and then he catches it. Snatches it. it. And then he brings her in. And the whole time, um, Ethan and his team are struggling to get her on satellite. Right. We're cross-cutting to Ethan and his team, who we are just introduced to right now, setting up in, like, the wasteland. Mm-hmm. So, Kim, who does he pick to be on his team? Luther, obviously. Luther! Luther is back. <laughs> Luther is back with a great, great intro. He steps off the helicopter, steps into a pile of shit. He goes, shit. And, and then Ethan, Ethan goes, says, yeah, it is. Yes, it is. And then I think he said something about his Gucci. Because yeah. later he's going to talk about his Versace. I wrote that down. Yeah, but I did too. This is, I like that they're establishing as Luther is like a man of style. He is. And uh, then we're introduced to Billy. Billy. <laughs> Poor Billy. Patron <laughs> saint of the... Uh, Never to be heard of again IMF yes, team members. Whose main characteristic seems to be being aggressively Australian. That's well, the only thing we know about him. He's also, I think, maybe aside from Emilio, who wasn't actually the goofy support guy on the team, but he he's was a jokester. But yeah. he's actually pretty and so serious. Billy was kind of the jokester, I think, of this team. Even though he didn't actually make a lot of jokes, he was just kind of like the idiot. No, it's weird. They set him up as like he's going to be the crazy, wild, reckless guy, and then that he's is just not kind of in the background. I feel like maybe that extra hour and a half they took off. Maybe it was Billy all his talking stuff. about like his tragic childhood. Yeah. And how he joined the service. <laughs> but so yeah, that's your that's your crew. It's these three guys. They're gonna sit in a shack in the outback. Yep. 
And uh, Ethan is very tense about getting Naya on the screen as he watches her approach Ambrose. And then the screen fun- like suddenly does fill with her image just as she and Ambrose kiss. And Share it's a little make out on weird the and Ethan isn't happy about it. And then uh, Naya goes into Sean Ambrose's house, which is this gorgeous, stunning mansion on the Sydney Harbor, which also, it is the Sydney Harbor, right? Yeah. So apparently there is no actual house where that is. They they built a fake house out of like cardboard. Because okay. um, apparently like you can't buy real estate that looks like that. Okay. But that was also like sort of my real practical question. If you're Sean Ambrose, AKA one of the world's most wanted villains at this point in time, yeah. you're hanging out at a luxury mansion on the Sydney Harbor front, which is maybe the most findable place in the world. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like it's particularly well protected. There, there, I've only thought about this right now, but there's a really good argument to be made that why do you need IMF for this? What you need is like just the Australian special forces to, to come mount in. an attack. Like yeah. He, he, There's nothing around the house. I mean, I guess to be fair, IMF doesn't know what Chimera and Bellerophon are. Yes. Ethan does spend a lot of time establishing, establishing the fact that it's they don't know what it is. a virus. Yeah. He, he says that. He's like, I think it's probably a virus. And he, he's got <laughs> it. He's got it right on. So they don't really know what he has. And they don't really know if he has both parts. So maybe they're being careful, like on the off chance that Chimera is a dirty nuke and like yeah. he's going to set it off. But you're right. Just so storm we'll the compound. He's got like John three Wu guys. The benefit of the doubt. He's got three guys. Two of them seem to be computer people. <laughs> um. So now, wait, we're back in the mansion and... And we get Dugray Scott at his most villainous. This this starts to get really gross. This is oh, part of where I like... This I'm was like, this gross. Movie hates yeah. He, he's bought Naya a dress and then she he, starts he changing has, in front of him and he has... The most disgusting look I've ever seen. Well, he also on has face. one of the creepiest lines, which is, I want to see if I remembered your size, which uh, yeah, is yeah. just, ugh. And then Tom Cruise is like watching all this happen from the safe house. There's a weird. I don't know if he can see what's going on inside the house at this point, but. Right. He's at least probably imagining able it. to imagine yeah. it. It's, 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 it's a, it's, it's more serious subject matter than. The film the, actually allows. Yeah. For. It's like, yeah. Yeah. And. I might, I am jumping ahead a little bit here, but um, Dugray uh, or Sean Ambrose knows that Naya is probably working against him, and yet he allows her into his circle again just so he can sleep with her. Yeah. So, so there's a character we should probably introduce right now, which is Sean Ambrose's number two man, Hugh Hugh Stamp, who is apparently an Australian actor who was playing South African. And so when I was watching it the whole time, I was like, where's this guy from? (laughs) (laughs) Seems weird to make him play South African if it takes place in In Australia. Australia. Yeah. But from minute one, Hugh is like, yo, bad. This is a bad idea. Like, what are you talking about? And Dugray Scott is like, "Eh, let's just see what happens. Well, they also have a really gross line, which is he's gagging for it, which just that made. She wasn't exactly gagging for it. Yeah. No, I was. I I did like a. Talk about gagging. <laughs> but what does Dugray Scott do when uh, Hugh questions Naya's uh, loyalty to him? Well, first of all, as he's being criticized by his henchmen, which f- probably makes Sean Ambrose the man very, like, how dare you be so uppity with me? He c- 
cuts the end of a cigar for himself with one of those mini guillotine machines. Which I believe he actually does incorrectly. I don't know. So I will defer to you on that. I have smoked cigars twice. And each time (laughs) the guy at the store was like, all right, so do you know cigars? And I was like, no. And he's like, you're going to cut it wrong. And I was like, (laughs) okay, what? And he was like, don't cut off the entire end. You just need like a little hole. So Sean Ambrose (laughs) needs to meet this guy that you met. Um, But... He doesn't, too, for the next scene, which is uh, teaching Hugh a lesson. Yeah. Basically takes his hand. And Hugh doesn't fight it. Hugh's just like, this yeah. is happening. And Sean cuts the tip of his pinky finger off. While Naya is sleeping, like, six feet away? Yep. She can probably hear everything. Yep. yep. Let me ask you a question. How many times have we seen the supervillain of a movie in a bathrobe? It was oddly effective for me. He was yeah. like doubly creepy being in a bathrobe and cutting yeah. people fi- people's fingers off. It's like he didn't even need armor. He was just yeah. like, I'm so chill. Yeah, no one's going to raise a yeah, finger. Yeah, I'm untouchable. Me. Especially not that pinky finger now that I've cut half of it off. <laughs> so this will become important. Hugh is now missing the end of his pinky finger. Yes. But we will come back to that. And then what happens next? So basically, what happens next is... Sean decides to go to the uh, horse races Mm -hmm. because he's going to meet a nefarious criminal contact there. Naya goes with him. And so Luther, Billy, and Ethan decide to go as well to monitor the whole thing. Yes. And And um, in this week's episode of uh, Where is Luther Sitting, he is in the first of at least two vans in this movie. Luther Luther is sitting in a lot of of vans. So I'm going to get this out here right now. Mm Mm-hmm. Luther fucks up an awful lot in this movie. He also just spends most of his time looking at a weird digital clock counting down and then repeating the numbers out loud. So Luther's like grand, brilliant tech setup is that Naya can only be tracked from one specific computer so that no one else can, can like lock onto her homing signal. But then the computer gets damaged. Like and why they can't wouldn't you have a signal. backup? Yeah. Like I feel like... Even in the year 2000, with all the technology we've seen this team use, you can have a backup computer. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's not at his best in this movie until all of a sudden he is. Yes. And then we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. So um, basically the bad guys set up the terms of their exchange while Ethan and Naya have a... Yeah, we see we see Sean meet with uh, Brendan Gleeson, mm-hmm. is it? Um, I forget his name in the movie, I'm, but Well, Brandon. his name in the movie is John C. McCloy. Oh, how could, how how could, could you I forget that? that? <laughs> yeah, they make that very clear. Um, but yeah, he, he sets up the meeting with uh, Brendan Gleeson. They get a, he, he gets a, so oddly, we want to talk about gadgets. So much of this movie depends on digital cameras from the year 2000. Oh my God. These, these big chunky things and their memory cards. Yep. So... Uh, Sean gets a memory card off of John C. McCloy and, uh, Naya has to then pickpocket it, it off of him, get it to Ethan. Ethan has to upload it. And then now again, having just watched the movie, refresh my memory. This was something I wanted to like rewind and confirm, but there just wasn't enough time. It does go into his left jacket pocket, right? It was confirmed repeatedly that Sean puts the memory chip Sean in his left jacket. Sean puts the memory chip jacket. in his left jacket pocket. She takes it out of the pocket, the left pocket, but then... And but it's actually a pretty cool scene where you see her skills as a thief. Like at one point she thinks she's caught, so she transfers it with like just... It's very deft. She's, <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny because this whole movie she's wearing like 
these very thin, silky, flowing clothes that, like, I just, I can't imagine you could hide anything in them. <laughs> but yes, she's, she's hiding, she's moving the chip, like, around her body so, mm-hmm. that, so that no one can see it. And then, basically, she ends up fighting with, so, so, Tom, Ethan gets the thing, he looks at it with Luther, and they figure out what Chimera and Bellerophon is, and as soon as he realizes that it's this deadly, deadly virus, he's like, get out of there, yeah. I'm calling off the mission, and she's like, no, the job's not done. Mm-hmm. Because she's the only professional on this team. Yep. She's a badass. And I feel like it's because Ethan holds her up so much, she ends up like having to run back to Sean. And so she botches the plant. She she isn't able to get it back into his left pocket. She puts, she it, puts it back it in, in the right, right pocket. And that's yeah. actually a really nice wordless scene where you see that he notices. He He catches her making the plant and doesn't say anything. Sean notices. Yeah, Sean notices. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a really good scene. Yeah, and I actually didn't catch that particular bit. It wasn't until Sean said in the next scene, it's in my right pocket, that I went, yeah. oh, shit. They're fucked. Yeah, so I wasn't sure if like he did a switch or not, but now that's clarified and just makes me appreciate the scene all that much more. So basically, after that, uh, Ethan and his team figure out that they have to break into Biosite, which is the science lab where the disease and cure was concocted. Well, a couple of things happen right before that. Go on. So one, Sean is now specific. Two, Ethan figures out that Brendan Gleeson is John C. McCloy, who is the CEO of Biosite, a mm-hmm. pharmaceutical company. So we see two things happening at once. One is someone who looks very much like Ethan is sneaking into the compound, Sean's compound, to go visit Naya. Right. And someone who we don't see is kidnapping John C. McCloy. Right. And turns out, spoiler, that the Ethan who is sneaking into Sean's compound, he does have an exchange with Naya. Where he... Says, should maybe tip Nye off, because last time she sees Ethan, it's at the, the uh, racetrack, and Ethan says, get out of there. I'm getting you out of there. Yeah. This is like six hours later. And he's just coming to visit and check and on And what her. he says is, you have to stay. Yeah. You can't, yeah. We can't alarm Sean Ambrose. And then as she, you know, takes a deep breath and like goes back in there, because she's doing it for Ethan now, yeah. uh, Sean Ambrose rips off his this Ethan Max. This is a great mask risk. It was so good. Because usually, usually what you see is someone grabs at like their lower chin yeah. and pulls off diagonally. Here you see... He's shaking with rage. And he's facing the camera directly and he grabs like his hairline and pulls down. Yeah. It's a really, it's a really great shot. Yeah, it's so good. And then you know that Nye is fucked. Yeah. And it turns out that the person who has kidnapped John C. McCloy... How he shall ever have his name pronounced. Is Ethan dressed up in a mask of Dr. Vladimir. So yeah. one, is this the maskiest of all the, uh, the Mission Impossible movies? Well, I was thinking about that. I suppose you could argue the opening scene of Mission Impossible, the first movie, is maskiest. It's just bad because it's a scenario where they've set up a fake thing. They've made their, the person that they're interrogating think one thing is happening yeah. when it's actually all subterfuge. So... Yeah, but then I feel like masks don't come back in that movie until the end, whereas this movie, we're getting masks all the way through. Oh, sorry, I thought you meant scenes. No, no the, the there's definitely. Movie. Well, I feel like maybe once they figured out how to make the masks look real, they're like, guys, this is awesome, we have to times. do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so basically, in this interrogation scene with John C. McCloy, again, we have someone giving away their entire villainous plan to someone in a, in a rubber mask. And what it turns out the villainous plan is, is... To make a lot of money by selling the only cure 
to the disease that they have manufactured. Right. But they're actually going to, they're going to release the disease. That's part yeah. of the plan. They're going to infect the populace. Yeah. And, and then uh, the only cure will be their cure and they will make a profit. Yes. Now, are you interested in the scientific inaccuracy here or should we just blow right past <laughs> no. it? No. <laughs> Tell me the scientific inaccuracy. So I remember this coming up, I think with the movie Contagion, but- Oh shit. Yeah. I remember that movie. Movies always think it's terrifying if a disease kills you really, really fast. Mm-hmm. But apparently, like, um, a disease that kills you this fast, which is, um, you're dead in, I think, 37, like, you can't be cured after 20 hours, but I think you're dead after 37. Yeah. It actually moves too fast to spread in a really deadly fashion. Hmm. So if you release it in Australia, right, um, it's, it's, it's unlikely that it would ever leave Australia, because basically you'd be dead on the flight before you landed in yeah. San Francisco, and it's easier then for, like, the CDC to contain the really scary virus is, is something like HIV, where you go years where you are infectious, but you're not showing Your symptoms. Carrier. So apparently, like, they kind of fucked up the influenza. They actually want, like, you know, maybe a two-month death rate. So we're definitely getting ahead of ourselves. But at some point, a character is referred to as the, ty- ty- oh my God, I can't say it, Typhoid Mary of Oz. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not actually grounded in science. Yes. <laughs> anyway, I was going to point that out. Probably nobody cares about that, but that's their plan. Nope, that's so, great. At, from this point on, Ethan realizes, or Ethan decides he's going to go into the laboratory and destroy the only living sample of, of Chimera, the disease. Ethan's orders are actually to go retrieve a living a live sample, sample yeah. and destroy the rest of it. But, but so, yeah, so as they're figuring out the plan to break into... I thought of you so much during this scene. Why? What scene? Well, okay, so last time you said how cool it was to see people planning the heist. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved it. This time we get dueling heist scenes. Yes. <laughs> so good. <laughs> um, I don't know what room they're in as they're planning it, but it was just very well done and very just... Yeah, so on the one hand, we get Ethan planning to break into Biosite, which involves a stunt that is going to be kind of like the CIA breaking in the first movie. Yeah, I think like um, to hold true of my theory that each director watches the first movie and they go, what's a thing that I can play with? I think Ethan's entry into Biocene is a homage to the hanging wire from the Langley break-in. Yeah, and then at the same time, we see Sean planning his counteroffensive of to get in there from the ground floor, kill a bunch of people, and get a sample before Ethan can get one out. It's a race. It's a race. And I got really excited by Sean describing Ethan's character. Yep. And I, I'm i so tempted to do this in a Scottish brogue, and I'm not. No, do it, do it, do it. Offensive. But Sean goes, he'll engage in aerobatic insanity <laughs> before harming a hair on a security guard's head. <laughs> And I love that, right? That like, this is, this is going to stay, I'm so sorry, all of Scotland that I just did this. That wasn't a new great Scott accent, but that was a great Scottish Thanks. broke. You're welcome. Uh, we'll see if we have to re-record that later. But this is going to come up, right? That Ethan will not kill innocents. Yeah. He's a real old-fashioned good guy. Like, Well, and it also shows, um, this was kind of touched on earlier in the movie, but Sean has had to play Ethan. Like, in the fictional u- universe where all of this is real, Sean Ambrose has been Ethan's, Ethan's understudy yeah. many times. And I don't know, maybe he's a little resentful of that, and that's part of the reason why he hates him so much. But it also explains why both of these men who are so similar immediately fall in love with Naya and... I don't know. In John Woo films, did, 
Sorry. Did you notice that they're wearing the same colors at the racetrack? Oh, yeah. And they're wearing the same colors at the very end in their great fight. But I I think that ties back to John Woo's. Like, he often plays with themes of, you know, there's good and there's bad, but there's often a lot of overlap. And it's Mm -hmm. kind of hard to tell the difference between the two. Like, Ethan is obviously always a good guy. But I think between Ethan and Sean, you get this is what, this is the spectrum. You know what I got to give this movie points for? It sets up very early that there is Chimera the good guy and Bellerophon the bad guy. Yes. And then you have Ethan the good guy and Sean the bad guy. And they don't <laughs> they don't hit that on the head too heavily. They give you just enough to be like, uh, do you feel smart? Yeah. Do you see what we're doing here? <laughs> or, yeah. And then they, they just kind of let it lie. Yeah. Complicated plot, no more. <laughs> yeah. So I have a note here during uh, the break-in. Mm-hmm. I'm going to throw this out to you. This is not positive or negative, but it's about his hair. So I wrote here, Tom Cruise looks like Jason Schwartzman in this scene. (laughs) Sorry, that was like a bark laugh. (laughs) Well, but doesn't he? With the with the floppy hair, he looks kind of like a like a shop girl era Jason Schwartzman. Yeah, I guess you're not wrong. I did not have that thought really and truly the whole time. I was just like, this is so cool. This scene's great. Ethan's great. Um, Wasn't fixated on the hair except for at the very end of the break in when he runs away through the cloud of fire and it's just and like slow-mo the hair it doesn't looks look like great a pantene commercial yeah. <laughs> but like for men so so where is ethan's team during this so luther i think is in another truck somewhere a van yes. and billy is just floating around on a helicopter yeah. somewhere circling. and so basically ethan has to drop through these open ventilation slats which is great like let's rewind and just appreciate this scene um obviously the stunt didn't happen like this in real life but to imagine it happening as ethan hunt he knows he has to jump off the plane in order to make it through the vents at a certain point and he decides to jump the cable has to go back up yes he has they've got what 40 40 seconds seconds to complete this task and so he knows the clock is ticking and so he just jumps before the vents are even open Ving Rames, Luther is having a real hard time getting those this vents is, open. He, yeah, he's he not, taps those he's not keys well. real aggressively. So, Luther is being terrible in this scene, but you know who's being great in this scene? Ving Rames, because <laughs> him doing the countdown is so dramatic. It's just a man reading numbers off the screen, but he 19, sells it to you. 18, 17, <laughs> 16. It's so good. And like again, we've said that his job through this series is to be us the audience yes, and, sit yes. and be like isn't this really tense? I know, and it was tense. And what I love too is when he does jump off the helicopter, he makes it through the vents, and he basically flies down this cylinder shaft where he just ends up in a very similar Langley setup where it's this room and there's a scientist who, if he turns out, that was actually a kind of a funny scene where he yeah. drops down and there's a guy just like do to do in the room and Ethan has to slowly lift himself up going, oh shit. Yeah, and so he gets in there. He he loses communication with the team, which is going to set up my favorite joke of the movie. Okay. What I think is like the only really funny joke of the movie. <laughs> I think I know what joke this is. Yeah, but so the whatever plot device system comes on where he's going to be out of contact for eight minutes, and as soon as he goes out of contact, they realize Naya's in the Naya building. Is in the building, and Billy's like, oh, "I bet she's not alone, right?" And, yeah, and Vingram's like, "Yeah, thanks. That's." That's kind of what I was telling you. Yeah. And then one of my favorite lines in the movie, I actually did write it down because I thought it was so funny. Um, I just need to find it because I don't want to misquote it. 
Oh, I can't remember, but it's them. So Naya and Ethan are being tracked by the IMF team as red oh, wait dots a minute, wait a minute. and yellow dots. Where where Luther gives the most unnecessary plot summary ever, where yes. it's like, Ethan's got to kill all the bugs before the yellow dot gets to the red dot. Yeah. <laughs> I loved it. I yep. thought it was great. <laughs> and so he comes pretty close, right? He kills all but one sample of Chimera. There are three samples. He kills the first two. And then, of course, when he's getting to the last one, Boom, Sean Everything and team hell. come in. And so Ethan hasn't seen that Nye is there yet, but a, but a, uh, a big gunfight breaks out. Uh, a bunch of people are shot. There's one uh, little injection gun with Chimera lying on the ground. Yeah, and it's important to make clear that it is an injection gun. Like, yes. why would you keep it in a vial where maybe it's harder to get at? Like a super, instead it's like an Were easily injectable. to inject people with it? <laughs> um, but but they get they get into some great gunfight banter where basically like Ethan has kind of taken uh, he's he's hidden behind the only piece of cover and, and mm-hmm. Sean's leading his team there and they're they're joking back and forth um, about like how hard it is to impersonate each other and then my favorite scene of any movie ever <laughs> ever <laughs> are you gonna stand by this is this your favorite movie scene of all time so so let me. Can I describe what happens? Yes. Because I want to hear I, I how you it. describe it. I loved it. it at the time. Thought I was going to find it silly this time. Mm-hmm. Nope. So Ethan is hiding behind some cover. Sean is up a flight of stairs. And in between them is the Chimera gun. I'm, I'm getting so excited just talking. I got like chills. <laughs> in between them is the Chimera gun. And the idea is that if either one of them goes for it, basically the other one can shoot the other. So they're kind of, they're at a stalemate. And Which is also a John Woo thing, by the way, the standoffs. Standoff, yeah. So at this point, Sean plays his big move, which is he brings out Naya. And you Ethan's can see caught off guard. Ethan's heartbreak. He's yeah. like, I fucked up. I told myself I was never going to get another team member killed. And, and now it's the woman I love. Yeah. And so Sean sends Naya out to pick up the gun and bring it back to him, oh, knowing that Ethan isn't going to shoot her because he's a, he's a schoolboy. Yep. And she comes walking out and Ethan goes, you know, he's just going to kill you the second after you give him the gun. And I like that. She's kind of like, thanks, genius. What do you think he's going to do if I give it to you? Yeah. <laughs> right. And then oh my, OK, so Hans Zimmer did the score to this movie. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and it's actually it's very similar to his Batman score. But but there's also this like angelic chanting. Yes. And so Naya picks up the gun and the score is swelling. He's going like, da, da, da. <laughs> And she is, she is, she has this big pool of light behind her. She looks angelic and like it, they're cross cutting between all three people. And it's getting super exciting. And then she does the most badass move in this movie or any movie. She shoots herself. She injects herself. It's so good. And everything goes to hell. Like immediately people start shooting at each other. Ethan jumps. She runs to Ethan. He scoops her up. He's like shooting people while like twirling around. He's like, why did you do that? And then, and like, I was actually genuinely touched by this scene. I was right there with you in that emotional drama. She said she was trying to make sure he didn't get hurt. Right. She's the only one who's doing her job. Like, yeah. she plays the only card she can do, right? Which is inject herself. It's brilliant. And then this is something so cool that I, like, I can't remember seeing it in another action movie, which is like, he's there, he's he's got the person he's been sent to rescue, but he realizes he can only get himself out. Yep. And- 
Oh, and then she says that to him too. Like he's freaking out. He's shielding her with his body, and, he's and like she punching says, "Punching the wall. You can only get one person out." And he just looks at her and nods, and you can just see the anguish in his face. And Tom Cruise is a great actor. And speaking of, like you know, I, I was talking about the line earlier where he's like, "Feel better." We get, <laughs> oh, we get such a great line where she's like, she 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 takes his gun and she puts it to her chest, and she's like, "You gotta kill me. It's it's the only thing you can do." Which probably is the only move like. You should do, right? Yeah. if this gets out, the whole world dies. Like, I don't understand a lot about this disease. Like, do you have to be a live right. carrier for Is it, it to airborne? spread? But like, it's, yeah, whatever. It Continue. And Tom Cruise goes, I've got 19 hours and 58 minutes to get Bellerophon into your system. I'm not going to lose you. No. Okay, I wrote that line down too, but he says, just stay alive. Yes. I'm not going to yes. lose you. Yes. <laughs> That's what he says. And then he throws a, a bomb, bomb at a wall. Wall explodes. Jumps out and parachutes away. And, and the I'm most like, badass hair commercial of all time ensues. I'm like, I love this fucking movie. This movie <laughs> is great. I so much. I'm so in. And then Nia just stands there and watches and him And he has go. to leave her. It's heartbreaking. It's exciting. It, and I just loved it so much. It's like, so it was great. Like, I, in that moment, I was like, why doesn't the entire world love this movie? Right. I feel angry on its behalf. Yeah, I was like, of course this was the biggest movie of 2000. Yeah. What was better than this in 2000? Nothing. It was so good, so good. I will also take this moment to add, I think that Tom Cruise desperately needed to make a movie like this at this time. Okay. So it's 2000. Um, the last big m- movie year that he had, I think was 1996 with Mission Impossible, followed by Jerry Maguire. I can't remember if there's another movie in there, but I do know he spends basically two years now shooting Eyes Wide Shut. Okay, so this is what I was going to say. Doesn't doesn't Eyes Wide Shut come out? Yeah, so Eyes Wide Shut comes out in, I think it's 1999. At the same time, he squeezes in making um, Magnolia. Right, which isn't really a Tom Cruise movie. He, he has a, a great scene in it. Yeah, but. which we've kind of talked about before. But also his production company... Needs to do something. They need to get him, Tom Cruise, back I on just, the big screen. I got to take a pause here. You have acknowledged that you haven't seen Magnolia. Have you seen the Tom Cruise scenes in Magnolia? No, I. But I know what it. Like I've seen photos of him in it. I think I've seen maybe a clip here or there. But I know he's an like a woman hating asshole in that movie. You will never know how much until you see it. I urge you to YouTube just the Tom Cruise clips. Yeah, seen but like, out what of if, context. What if we make it to all the Tom Cruise movies? I don't. Yeah, I know, but just. We'll come back to it. We'll come back to it. But so it's 2000. And I think Tom Cruise, the human being, has maybe just had the most artistically draining few years of his life. He hasn't been really back in like on the big screen, budget topping movies. What was the reception to Eyes Wide Shut? Oh, it flopped. Like it was not good, especially because it was an industry known thing. Like it was it. To this day, I think it still holds the Guinness World Record for the longest consecutive shoot. They were 200 days on set. But. Like I know now, it is it is critically well regarded. Did people feel that way when it came out? I mean, I remember it just be having like a very complicated. I think it was complicated when it came out. It was also complicated by the fact that it was Stanley Kubrick's last film, and I I don't know enough about it to like I am not an expert. I think people were trying to be respectful of Kubrick, but Tom Cruise did not come out well after that movie came out. It was like Nicole Kidman was sort of the silver lining of the okay. film, but... Because it, it's interesting. You can imagine, if you look at everything he does prior to 2000, 
his career going a very different track where instead of following kind of the Mission Impossible route, he follows the... Well, this is actually the point that I have been weirdly circling around. Uh, Tom Cruise, for the first 10 years of his career, didn't want to do action movies, refused Hmm. to make sequels. He refused to make sequels. He turned down so much money for Top Gun 2. When Top Gun first came out and it was the huge hit that it was, they immediately said, let's make another... Tom Cruise said no. In fact, he goes on to make movies that you can't really make sequels to. Like, you can't make Born on the 4th of... Born on the 5th of July. (laughs) Like, it's just... You can't do that. Born on Columbus Day. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, um... And then he doesn't really make action films either. Like, I think he had the racing car one. But again, that's sort of like Top Gun where he's not an action star in it. It's more so he's just... Yeah, he's just doing exciting things. Even though I know he learned to drive those cars and that's a... Yeah, but I honestly think Tom just wanted to have fun. He wanted to make a big movie that people would love. And why he was willing to go back and do a sequel? I I think so. I think he had so much fun on the first movie. Maybe he was just discovering, oh my gosh, I actually really like being an action film. Okay, this this wants this 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 kind of takes me into like one of my favorite things about this series, which is that everyone has a different director, each one has a different tone to it. Mm Mm-hmm. And we've talked about it can be more successful, less successful, but each one feels fresh and different. And, uh, you know, reading this IMDb trivia page, which is really the only work I did for this. um, (laughs) Yeah, apparently John Woo was worried about, like, he went back and and, and watched the Brian De Palma one and was like, do you want me to, you know, try and change things up? And Tom Cruise was like, no, I want you to make a John Woo movie. I want this to feel different. And you you get the feeling that, like, someone who didn't want to do sequels had interesting... I think the language that Tom Cruise used with John Woo was, no, this is just a new episode in the Mission Impossible installment. So it's not even, it's not really a sequel. Just think of it as, here's the framework, but here here are your limits, play within it. Yeah. I, and I just, I don't know, I, I think that's kept this series really exciting. It's a fundamentally different movie from the first Mission oh, Impossible. And for sure. And my reaction to this movie... <laughs> fundamentally different? <laughs> fundamentally different. I was excited, I was into it the whole way through, and we're getting away from the movie itself. Well, so. that's all, we're, we're basically done. So Naya mm-hmm. gets, gets taken off, and then it, this leads right into the next mission, which is... Tom Cruise is, Ethan Hunt is basically like, all right, bring out the big guns. We're going to go get her back. Yep. Um, cause, and cause, they've got less than 20 hours. So as soon as Nia injects herself, this was, I thought, also a really lovely touching scene. So she injects herself, immediate shot of Ethan. He looks horrified, but he sets, he his, sets watch. his watch. Yeah. He's like, the countdown is on. Yeah. I'm going to save it's her. It's really great. Yeah. Um, and so I would say up until this point, we've seen some John Woo flourishes. Mm-hmm. But from this point on, this is a capital J, capital W, John Woo movie. Because <laughs> right down to the doves. We're going to get some doves. We're going to get some slow-mo. We're going to get an awful lot of martial arts. Yes. Um, some more successful than others, I would say. Yeah. I will also say his use of music in this film. Um, so you mentioned before, you did a beautiful rendition of the, of of the Hans score. score. I actually made a note about that score. To me, it reminded me of the Gladiator score. Now, that movie came out the same year. So but it's you're obviously right. I was It's when like Russell Crowe is like of Elysium yeah, yeah and he's like playing with the wheat so Okay this is way off track but did you <laughs> see the meme So Christopher Robin the movie has been out for like a couple of months at the time we're yeah. recording this but did you see the shot in the trailer where Pooh is walking through like the 100 acre wood and he's running his <laughs> fingers through the grass Someone put these side by side it looks I 
identical <laughs> to the scene in Gladiator. I where... really hope it was on purpose. Whoever that cinematographer, film editor, whoever that was, they were like, this is my thing. Yeah. This is my stamp on the right. film. <laughs> An homage to, to Ridley Scott. <laughs> I mean, the obvious successor to Gladiator is we need to. Christopher Robin, yeah, of course. <laughs> anyway. Are you not entertained? <laughs> no bother. <laughs> Really good. Thanks. Thank you. You're really good at voices. That actually dude. did not sound like poo at all, but <laughs> that's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll. Okay, so you know who is bothering Ethan Hunt trying to save Naya? Yeah. So how is he doing it? So he, so so they send Naya away. Sean is going to go to the meeting where he's going to um, basically get the money and and sell the stuff back to John C. McCloy yep. for uh, something like 30 million pounds or whatever. And they send Naya into, they're, they're basically going to drop her in the middle of um, Sydney so that she can infect people, I guess. Yeah. Um, so Ethan sends Billy and Luther to go get Naya. Or no, I guess not. They're going to wait outside while Ethan is going to go in himself and raid the compound. Yeah. And it's only later that To he get the cure to save Naya with. Um, question, did they just, I, I think I missed this watching it. Do they just leave Naya by herself in the middle of downtown Sydney? I think so. And, and she starts basically, Ethan says to them, he's like, you don't actually have to worry about her if 20 hours go by and we haven't saved her, she's going to kill herself. Yeah. And so and, we see her slowly walking towards it. And that seems like a real oversight on Sean Ambrose's part. Like, yeah. if he's, if, if the whole point of getting this cure is to disease a bunch of people, yeah. then why would you let typhoid Mary of Oz right. off herself? Also, though, Naya fucks up here, too. If she is going to kill herself by throwing herself off a cliff, why would she throw herself off a cliff into the Sydney Harbor Again, we don't know how this is disease that where spreads. where the water comes from? Like, is that where drinking water comes well, from? Well, I just feel like people touch the water. People are going to go swimming. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, that's a good point. Oh, it's going to infect <laughs> the fish. The fish. Yeah. Gonna, like, huh? it just seems like if you're going to kill yourself. I mean, I guess the only other explanation is that they have her blood. So they already have chimera. Uh, they can okay. reintroduce. I guess their whole Mood thing point, is like, ignore everything we I don't have to even have to worry about her. Like, she's going <laughs> to off herself or she's going to infect people either way yeah. we win. But right. so Ethan storms the compound and he starts by doing. Some really cool martial arts. Yes. So he runs up the hill. He does this weird like somersault kick. <laughs> takes some people out. He gets in. And then he has what would almost be a supervillain move, which is he sets off a bomb by the door where their meeting's happening. Mm-hmm. And then walks by the flame in slow motion. Slow motion. Sean he, he sees him. He looks like a him. monster, yeah. <laughs> Immediately becomes enraged, screams, get that man, or something to that effect. Now, speaking of Sean, mm-hmm. are you interested in why this is financially implausible, his plan? Yes, I am. Go I don't on. think you are, but uh, we'll, we'll record <laughs> this anyway. So Sean pulls a, a last minute switch on John C. McCloy. John C. McCloy has offered to pay him 30 million, I can't remember if it's dollars or pounds or whatever. And then at the last minute, he says, no, I want stock options. So he's going to end up owning Biosite. 51% of it. Yes. So my father famously can accept anything in a movie as plausible. Right. Like, you know those direct-to-DVD action movies or direct-to-streaming now yeah. action movies that you're like, who's watching those? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, The Transporter 8. <laughs> Is it your dad? It's my dad. 100%. <laughs> and he loved, like... The wackiest physics, he's like, oh, I don't care. It was great. <laughs> as soon as there's anything financial in a movie. He's like, no. Nope. He shuts off. And I remember him trying to explain to me as a, a little kid 
why this stock options plot is implausible. And I still don't get it, but it has to do with insider trading and basically the fact that that trade immediately before Biosite... Wouldn't have happened? It, well, no, it would trigger all these alarms mm. and uh, you'd be facing like an oppression suit from the other shareholders. It's, it's a whole thing. Anyway, apparently the stock options wouldn't work. Take the 30 million and run. I wonder why they put that in there then. Maybe the screenwriter, similarly to me, doesn't understand finance. Yeah, I guess it's <laughs> and was just like, stocks villainous. are cool. <laughs> also... I guess it's a reason for them to stick around, right? Because otherwise, you take the thirty million, he takes the chimera, you're done. Get out of there, right? But, yeah, but that, then that they have to do a, a, a transfer scene from computer to computer. <laughs> Not as exciting. Yes. So, fast forward to: Do we have to talk about? No, we do want to talk about how at one point in the movie, I forget who it is, but as Ethan is making his way through the compound. A bad guy basically has him cornered and says, turn around slowly and keep your hands up. And just Ethan casually grabs a grenade from his back pocket. Well, well so, this is, so this is Hugh. Yes. It's our good friend Hugh, who we mentioned earlier. So, okay. Uh, oh, I skipped past my favorite joke in the movie. I was going to talk about my second favorite joke in the movie, which is Ethan's hiding in the rafters with a dove. <laughs> and then the dove like flies away and, and blows his position and that's how he gets caught. <laughs> and I feel like that's John Woo having fun with his like trademark dove yeah, thing. I think it is. Here was my other favorite joke. Go for it. And this is this is useful because I'm about to talk about how Luther suddenly ends up being amazing in this movie. Mm-hmm. But so Luther's in the van during the communications blockout while the shootout is happening. And then as right after um Sean announces that he has Naya. The communications kicks back in and Luther oh, goes, yeah. Ethan, Naya's <laughs> in the building. And Tom and Cruise nails the delivery. He just like silently goes, thank you. Thanks. It's <laughs> great. Also, Luther's van gets blown up and his jacket gets caught. And Oh, and what is it? What is the line he says? He's like, dude shot my Versace. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, dude put a hole, hole in, my, in Versace. my Versace. Yeah. But yes, anyway, so Hugh... He, we're, we're back in the compound here. Hugh corners Ethan. Ethan breaks out a grenade. Throws it at him. And I mean, like, at any point, Hugh really should have noticed that. Like, grenade this is, hanging off his body? I think Hugh kind of deserves what's coming. Because, again, just I, I did rewind the scene to watch it again. The grenade is visible. It's right there in so, the open. So what happens? So the grenade goes off, and then we don't see what happens, and then what happens? Well, we cut to, is it an immediate cut to Ethan I, Hunt bound and gagged? Yeah, on, pr- pretty much. Not I think, gagged. I think the grenade blows up, then we cut and spend a little time with Naya looking pensively at the Sydney Harbor, yeah, and with, then it cuts with back. With the gladiator music going right. uh, uh, <laughs> I think you should record uh, our own music. <laughs> Thanks. Voice for radio. Um, and Sean Ambrose is standing over Ethan Hunt, who his hands are tied behind his back. Sean Ambrose is yelling at him, says, stop mumbling. <laughs> <laughs> and then just shoots him, shoots him real hard. And it's like right. a slow says, motion. The d- music is says, so dramatic. Stop mumbling. And Stamp goes, don't think he can. I broke his jaw. <laughs> Which, I don't think that's how a broken jaw works, but no, it's great. No, I don't think so either. And then... There's this horrifying scene where, like, you get this so, weird choir Yeah, music. here's the thing, listeners. If you were watching this movie for the very first time, you don't have the hindsight that we do as we record this podcast. 
all you know is that Ethan is caught. Sean is now shooting him. Brutally murdering him in cold blood. There is like an orchestra going on in the background. Sean looks insane. But if you're watching very, very carefully, in the background, Hugh is walking towards the desk holding Chimera. Yes, he is. And then when you look at Tom Cruise's mutilated body on the ground, you just happen to see... And the, the little, Hans Zimmer score is going, dun, dun, yeah. dun, 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 <laughs> dun, 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 A little band on a pinky dun, dun, finger. Dun, 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 dun. Hugh. Yes. Sean so fucked up. Ethan has put an Ethan mask on Hugh, <laughs> and he's put a Hugh mask on himself. And, then, and Sean realizes it rips the Ethan mask off of Hugh. Which is like, this is the coldest thing Ethan does in the entire movie, which is he leaves Hugh to be executed. Yeah, brutally. he watches it. And then, yeah, Sean realizes that he's just killed his own man. Yep. And then we cut to dun, 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 dun. And <laughs> we see who we think is Hugh running down the corridor. Mask rip. It's Ethan. He's got Chimera. It's so fucking badass. There. It's oh so good. Oh my God, good. it's so great. He's running towards a helicopter. He's running toward Ving and Billy. Speaking and of where Luther's going to drop the ball again. <laughs> Luther isn't able to pick him up. He's not able to. And Ethan just goes, fuck it. Just get her. I'll meet get you at Naya. the point. I'm fine. Yeah. So what? Does Ethan use to escape? A motorcycle. A motorcycle. And it's the first time we've seen Ethan Hunt on a motorcycle, which is something I hope we never stop seeing. Oh, it's so it's good. Great. It's just, well, first of all, let's acknowledge that speeding on a motorcycle should inherently be terrifying to everyone. No one's wearing a helmet. And like doctors notoriously call people who ride motorcycles. Organ donors because right, they, it's they call dangerous. Them donor cycles, right? Yeah, yeah, like it's incredibly dangerous. And so now we've got our first amazing motorcycle chase. It's actually okay. This is where I do think John Woo watched The Matrix and went, "Oh, I can do one better." So the scene where Neo does the whole flying bendy backwards thing oh in the three sixty turn, he is spinning around on the motorcycle, on the motorcycle, and shooting people. I think that's John Woo doing going take that with That was great. And when so he's being chased by an entire convoy of cars that he's yeah. dispatching one by one. And this is this is one of the like it doesn't happen in the real words, but happens in movies where if you shoot the gas tank, the car explodes. Yeah. And there are so many explosions in this scene. This chase is amazing. It's so good. It's so exciting. And his leather jacket is mm, on oh, point. He's got like wind. quilted linen lining. Yeah. It's, it's very nice. But following this convoy is Sean Ambrose. Who is also on a motorcycle. His is red. Ethan's is black. And Ethan is doing mirror shots. Yeah. That was so cool. He's, he's, he's keeping his head forward, but he's looking at his side view mirror and shooting the gun backwards. Yeah. It's awesome. And now at the same time, he is getting an assist for Luther. So later we're going to answer some questions about who's the most valuable member and the least Mm -hmm. valuable member of the team. And up at this point, I was like, oh man, Luther's really not pulling it out. But yes, at this point, Luther gets a bullet through his Versace. Yep. And then responds by taking out a grenade launcher <laughs> and just Not fucking up cars all over the Sydney highway. <laughs> and I was like, Luther, you pulled it out of the bag. Yeah. You nailed it. <laughs> so fast forward a little bit here. Uh, Luther and Billy do pick up Naya just as she's about to, I don't know, just lob herself off a cliff. The helicopter appears. So we know Naya is safe for now. She's still dying. Yeah. And now we get... This amazing martial arts scene between Ethan and his arch nemesis Sean. Well, first his of all, mirror, his evil they have double. a sword fight with motorcycles. Oh yeah, that. How could I forget that? Oh, how could I forget that? This was like the most ridiculous 
scene, we need to unpack it when they're still on the motorcycles and they just, they, they do wheelies, they do wheelies. And then they come at one another. Yeah, like they're jousting. And then they both leap off of their motorcycles at both. the same time. The motorcycles collide and explode in the background. While those two men just grab one another around the chest and, and fall like, really far. Yeah. <laughs> So, no, here's my question about the whole leaping off the motorcycle thing. Like, obviously yeah. it looks cool as fuck, right? Like, yes, John Woo, film that scene. Yeah. But if you are Ethan and if you are Sean, why on earth would you do that? Like, first of all, there's got to be some sort of, like, maybe they learn this trick in IMF, but you have to be coordinated when you're making this jump, and it only really ends one way. Well, here's something I found really cool. In a lot of these movies, Ethan is kind of dispassionate about the villain. Like, it's just some guy he's never met. He does. He seems so, these two guys hate each other so much. And it's it comes out in the fight. because they're kind of the same. They're like brothers. But, and they both love but, Naya. But you're right. Like, Ethan's mission at this point is like, all he has to do is outrun Naya. Or sorry, outrun <laughs> Sean and get the cure to Naya. Mm-hmm. And then mission accomplished. Yes. And yet, he's kind of taking his time to like, nah, I, I really want to beat the shit out yeah. of this guy. <laughs> well, what's interesting about the fight too, like having, I don't know if I'm just prejudiced towards the later fist fights we see Ethan hunt in, but this one was really slow. Like, don't get me wrong. It's cool, but it's, I, it was more like an older Kung Fu where it was just like hit, pause, yeah, hit, it's, pause. I, I had the same thought. And part of why I wonder that might be is that Tom Cruise apparently told John Woo, he wanted to do like a Bruce Lee inspired um, martial art fight. We know Tom Cruise. I wonder if that's why he approached John Woo in the first place. Yeah, which is weird because John Woo doesn't actually do that quite kind of action film. Maybe he was just a huge fan of Face Off. I don't know. Yeah. Well, how could you not be? That's great. Well, (laughs) but I, you know, obviously Tom Cruise spent a lot of time doing the, the martial arts practice for this, but, you know, if you look at traditional martial arts filmmaking. These are people who are, you know, 50% an actor, 50% a martial artist. They've been doing it their entire lives. They haven't been doing it for six months before the shoot. And so it, it felt like the, I don't know if it's the actual actors or the stunt doubles, but they're, they're maybe just not quite at the level to pull off that kind of fight. So I, I wonder if that's why it looks a little slower. Yeah. I mean, it does pick up towards the end as these fights do. Well, and it, it starts getting really brutal where like Sean realizes he's kind of lost the day, but all he can do is kind of murder Ethan. And, yeah, and he's, he gets he's, a rock. Yeah, and he's, he's, he's punching him and screaming and it's- A it's, knife comes out of nowhere. Ethan's beautiful face gets cut. Well, okay. And you know the somewhat famous shot where like he plunges the knife down towards his eye? That actually happened, bro. Yeah, I know. Like less than a quarter of an inch away from Tom Cruise- Ethan Hunt's naked eyeball is a very sharp, very real knife. Yeah, there was like a whole rig with wires set up so that it couldn't go any farther. But he, he kept telling DuGray Scott, like, no, really plunge the knife down. <laughs> and he's like, I, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and I, I, I think, wonder if John Woo had like ulcers the whole time. I think time. this might have been where John yeah. Woo was just like, I'm so, I'm so fucking done with this. <laughs> like, we have stunt doubles and special. We have people whose job it is to make this look yeah. real without being real. Like, yeah. why are you? <laughs> <laughs> so Ethan keeps his eye. Naya shows up. The helicopter is now here. Um, right. So so Ethan turns the fight on him, beats him what he thinks is unconscious. Yes. Meanwhile, he has a moment to kill and Sean. He, he doesn't. He, he decides doesn't. to turn away and walk towards Naya. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we haven't mentioned this, but a gun has fallen into the sand. Yes. So what happens? So Sean grabs the gun. I've 
can't remember if he fires it or not, but he laughs like maniacally and he's like, you should have killed me, Ethan. Yeah. And Ethan has another gun. That's also in the sand. Right. At his feet. Yes. Like conveniently right at his feet. To his left is Sean in the sand holding a gun at him. Right in front of him. To his right is Luther with Naya in the chopper. Mm -hmm. And Naya has presumably... I don't know, 30 seconds left yeah, to get and- Bellerophon into her system. <laughs> and now she's noticed the gunfight standoff, so she's concerned, and she's starting to pull herself out of the helicopter. Yes. And then, so if you, you were going to make this scene in 2018, it would be edited together a little quicker. Yeah. But I still think this is so great. Yeah. <laughs> he basically does a skateboard wheelie thing with the gun, making he it pop into the air. throws the Bellerophon to Luther. <laughs> kicks the gun out of the sand, spins out of the way of Sean's bullet, catches the gun, and as he drops, (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye, Sean. Kill shot into Sean Ambrose. Yeah, and you're right. It it's such a pivotal moment in the movie, which is why I'm sort of frustrated by it. It did take too long. It slows down a little bit. We see him spin like 19 different times. Yeah, and like for that scene to be believable, like it has to happen like that. It has to happen in a split second. And from Ethan throwing the cure to shooting Sean. I think it's like at least 30 seconds. It's a long time. Yeah. (laughs) So still great. Still great. Naya is saved. Bad guy is dead. And then what happens next? Um, I believe it cuts back to, um, Ethan debriefing with commander Swanbeck. Yeah. And Swanbeck is going, Hmm, shame about that live sample, which you were not able to bring back. Yeah. It's, it's also interesting because, in pretty much every other movie, when he meets with his mission commander, it's either in like an IMF building or an office, or at least like in a in a in a mobile command center or something, or an yeah. airfield. Every time he's meeting with Swanbeck, they're like in a museum or know, in like a, a lovely furnished restaurant or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he has a debrief with uh, Anthony Hopkins. Yep. Um, and Swanbeck says, "And what of Miss uh, Nia Nordoff Hall?" and Tom Cruise starts grinning. Yep. And he's like, I, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, ju- I just don't know. Yep. Who knows? And then we start getting this really optimistic, cheery music. It's yep. very upbeat. And, and then we're in a beautiful park in New York, I think. I think it, I thought it was still Sydney. Maybe it is Sydney. There's a bridge in the background. Either way, there's like a beautiful fair going on. There are all these kids running around. There's there lots of colors. The there's a kite. Yeah. And there's Naya waiting just for Ethan. standing in the middle of the crowd. Just... It's a lovely moment. And then, like, it's a little bit, maybe a bit too cheesy, too over the top, but I was was here for it. it at this point. I was there. And I actually, I got frustrated watching this because I was like, how are Ethan and Naya not together anymore? Like, I don't care if in real life Tandy Newton said no. They should have, like, given her anything she wanted. That was great. And when Ethan, like, hugs her and then whispers in her ear, let's get lost. lost. Oh. Beautiful. It was so great. And then, you know, camera goes away as they walk through the laughing And then children. it cuts to the new metal Mission Impossible thing. Which, oh my God, Metallica. I, so, what? I messed up a little bit on last week's, uh, whatever. Do we, do we want to save this for the questions? We're about to get into the questions. No, it's we'll, fine. We'll this can be our first question. Okay. So what question is that? Which is, uh, what film does the best like treatment of the theme music? So as we noted last week, uh, the one at the end is done by U2. Mm-hmm. And I said, remember the caliber of the band they got for last week because we're going to talk about it next week. Yeah. In my mind, 
um, Limp Biscuit did the theme to this one. Yes. They did not do the, th- the theme to this one, but they did sample the Mission Impossible theme for like a tie-in song yeah. that I think was on the soundtrack. It was Take a Look Around, and it actually did so well uh, in 2000. It was definitely on my mix CDRW that I would put in my Discman. While I was waiting for with. you to come over, I watched the music video. It's so ridiculous. It's not good. <laughs> but are, are you into the, the Metallica? So the reason why I will always have a soft spot for Metallica in my heart, I am not a Metallica fan. Like that is not my genre of music, but it was actually the very first concert I attended ever in my life. That's really cool. Uh, I saw them play Cops Coliseum and Cops Coliseum in Ham in Hamilton when I must have been, I don't know, 15 or 16 years old. And we were in the mosh pit. Now imagine Lil Lil Kim. Kim. (laughs) Not the rapper. Yep. Little yourself. Had never been to a concert before. Suddenly in a mosh pit for a Metallica were, were you concert. Into Metallica? No. It was just a friend of mine said, Hey, I have an extra ticket yeah. to this Metallica concert. And I went, I've never been to a concert before. Ooh, That's a really cool be first concert. My first concert was Blink 182. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was, it was good times, cool. but they're not doing Mission Impossible themes. No. But um I was delighted to hear Metallica come on at the end. Because okay. I did remember your comment and I thought you were talking about I, I was not talking about Metallica. I, I'm I'm not the biggest Metallica fan, but I would not I'm, I'm neither do I hate them. I, I yeah. was making a reference to Limp Bizkit being like a slight step down from the high <laughs> prestige of you two. Doesn't matter. Well, what you said uh, when we were doing episode zero, you kind of can track popular music through the theme treatments yes. and Limp Bizkit and Metallica were like the yeah. cool musicians and bands of the time. Which, man, our kids are going to make fun of us for new metal and <laughs> rap rock. What a, what a, what a not great. I mean, who knows? Maybe it'll just get even more intense and bigger. We can't predict the future. Yeah. (laughs) No, I can confidently predict that's not coming back. Uh, This theme is fine. It might be my least favorite of all five. I think it works with the movie, but it it weirdly doesn't flow with the Hans Zimmer score. No, it doesn't. Um, But you sort of touched on this before. The music was pretty inconsistent throughout the movie. And I think maybe that's why. So we go from, you know, Limp Biscuit. I think that actually plays at the beginning. Of the oh, okay. Maybe I'm wrong. Okay. But when we get the film treatment at the very beginning, like, I don't know, it's there. And then we cut to a lot of like gladiator. Yeah kind of music and then I think that's why the theme is so exciting when Ethan is ex- escaping the compound oh, because it you're works like yes so well in that scene. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. So I would say I was delighted by Metallica's rendition I was of the theme. Less than delighted. That's fair. Um so do we want to get into the questions now? I think so. Do we do we have other stuff to talk about before we get there? No, I think that's the movie. I think, I think um, that's the movie. It was great. I loved it. I mean, yeah, I, I don't think we need to sum up for people what our feelings on it is. <laughs> <laughs> feelings are it's fucking great. Go I texted watch you immediately too. afterwards. I was like, it was awesome. It was so good. <laughs> I was mad at myself for years of not watching this movie. Oh, it's so good. And here's the thing, I know I am going to rewatch it again because when I love something, I become a bit obsessive about it. Yeah. But and I'm sure like my critical opinion of the film will go slightly down, but I will always have the high that I have right now from watching that for the first time. Ten out of ten. Amazing. All yeah. right. Let's okay. do the questions. So standard questions. Uh best gadget in the movie. And this one I think gadgets did not 
really like the masks. The masks are the best gadget. Um, I'm going to make a case for Naya's um, makeup compact thingy. The makeup compact thingy. Whoop. So when she when she's uh, <laughs> as I knock my microphone off the table, when she's doing the initial robbery in uh, Seville, right. she has a fa- she has what looks like a makeup compact, but it's it's like a radio receiver or something. Right. That to me is like the only real gadget in this thing. Yeah. I, I guess you are right. We're going to have to give it to the masks. This is the maskiest of the movies. Well, especially in comparison to the first Mission Impossible where like it looked gross. It looked like rubber melting when they yeah. would tear them off. And this one, they kind of looked real. Yeah. Not as real as they've looked in the most recent movies, but it is the year 2000. Good for them. Okay. I, 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 I will give it to the masks for this one. There's, there's really, like am I missing any? Well, there's a transponder chip that Naya has. Um, Lots of digital cameras. <laughs> I did laugh pretty hard at uh, the laptops that they had a they look worse DVD than... icon yeah. on the screen. <laughs> is, is it just me or do they look less powerful than the laptops from Mission Impossible 1? They look a little less powerful. Yeah. Maybe because Apple wasn't product placing this film. So <laughs> right. They, they go with like Dell stuff. or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, Dell. Not sorry. Um, yeah, well, the glasses, the Oakleys are really cool. But aside from that, there's not really other gadgets. I, I like the Oakleys because in every other movie when the, the thing self-destructs, it's just kind of like a poof of smoke. Yeah. These ones are like a stick of dynamite. They explode into the film title sequence. And it's a little weird because all the other ones are are like far away from your body. Like if it's a payphone, you're holding the receiver, but it's the payphone that blows up. Whereas yep. if you did not take these off your face before, <laughs> you're, you're down one agent. Maybe that's their version of like a Darwin test. Like, right. Is Ethan still on it? it? He's gone off the range. He's a lone wolf now. But what's great <laughs> is that like he takes the time as the as they're counting down, like in you know, self-destruct in five seconds, he takes them off and he talks to them. He's yep. like, if I told you that. I wouldn't, wouldn't be, be on, on vacation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so best stunt. It's got to be I the mean, rock climbing. It's got to be the rock climbing. Yeah. It, here, here's the thing. During the final chase on the motorcycles Mm -hmm. there might be an individual stunt in there that's better than the rock climb but but they're so crammed together they don't have time to breathe that they almost fly right past you yeah i like i i can appreciate that some of the stuff they did on the motorcycles may have been more technically impressive yeah their matrix 360 spin on the motorcycle where he spins around like that's cool yeah that was really cool and i'm sure it wasn't easy to put together i think just the reason why the cliff scene has to be better is because it's Again, this is where the Mission Impossible series, for me, becomes the Mission Impossible Mm -hmm. series. And I think it's tied to the fact that you're suddenly, as an audience member, aware that Tom Cruise might die. Right. And yes, exactly. Like, number one, there was all sorts of talk about the artistry of the the wire drop and Mm -hmm. and, and how iconic it was. It's an exciting scene when he jumps out of the plane through the vents. Like, it's really cool. But you're right. This is the first one where I remember there being publicity about, like... Tom Cruise maybe has a problem with adrenaline. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm with you. It's got to be the rock line. Speaking of publicity, I also want to defend Tom Cruise here. So another like publicity thing that happened while this film was being shot was um, there were tabloid headlines about the fact that Tom Cruise were, was issuing memos saying, don't, like this, the extras can't look at me. The staff can't look at me. And it actually turns out- Don't look at me? Well, it was based on a real thing that happened. So the racehorsing scene, oh, the extras oh, were all, you're... they were all starstruck. And so they kept about. looking at Tom Cruise and pointing at him and ruining the shot. And so this memo had to be distributed saying, guys, stop 
looking at Tom Cruise. <laughs> no, because he's actually really great about meeting fans. Yeah, and, he and, is. He loves yeah. his fans. He, it's it's us he's trying to impress, right. guys. This is right. why he's going to maybe die shooting one of these movies. It's for us. <laughs> All right. So we've, we are in agreement on... We are in agreement on the best stunt. Yeah, it's it's the rock. Yeah, um, so MVP of the IMF team. Okay, so I'm going to give you my hot take. It's Naya. Yeah. It's got to be Naya. I, I totally agree, too. She's the only one, as you said, that consistently does her job. Right, yeah, and 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 is good at her job. Mm-hmm. Like, even though she has emotional attachments to both these men, she doesn't let that get in the way of... And she's still such like a badass doing it. Even after she injects herself, we didn't pause to appreciate her brilliant line afterwards when she yells at Sean, like, you're not going to shoot this bitch. She's worth 37 million million pounds. So good. (laughs) And and, and she's also like an awesome thief. It really, truly breaks my heart rewatching this that she wasn't brought back as a member of IMF. Yeah. But it's got to be her. Ethan... Ethan Ethan fucks up a lot in this movie. Yeah, well, movie. Ethan, I think, becomes more of a human in this movie. Yes. And the Ethan that he is in this movie is someone who is a romantic hero. Like, he is yeah. doing everything for Naya. And I think we're going to see touches of that in the later movies, but not so much. I don't think there are any, like... Like, it's 20 minutes he spends seducing Naya, falling in love with her, them it's hanging out. It's a very out. James Bondian. Yeah, um, that's exactly it. It's totally James Bondian. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so least valuable member of the IMF team. So I think there are two people who are in tough con- competition for this Billy one. and Luther. Yes. Yeah. And I was very prepared to give it to Luther because Billy, at least, his job is to fly stuff and he flies stuff. Yeah. Luther, though, when he brought out the grenade launcher, I, you know, I, 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 I think Billy is the least valuable well, member. He is because he's not in the third film, which I still no. can't remember. Um, um, I don't believe that actor acted after this movie. Dang, what? He, a- well, he so he's also a director, um, and and he continued to direct, but I. I think this might be his last on-screen performance. I mean, having now seen the movie and loved it, if you're going to go out on a high note, go out on sure. Mission Impossible too. Yeah, that's a great way to retire. Yeah. But uh, I would give it to Billy. Same. No okay. argument there. Um, so we've already kind of talked about where Luther is sitting this week. He's sitting in a van. Yep. But he's also sitting on a helicopter. And I think he does that twice in yeah. the movie. He also sits in, a, in a, that hut in the Australian Outback. Yes. I, I felt... Um, he does also run towards the end of the movie, so good for him with the can, running. Can I ask you about the Australian climate? There are a lot of people wearing leather jackets and suede jackets. No. <laughs> Is there any time of the year where that would be appropriate in Sydney? So most of my... 80% of my time in Australia was limited to the West Coast, and most of that was in Perth. Uh, no, what regular fashion is, is just... It's fucking hot in yeah. Perth. You don't wear leather. <laughs> right. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I had that. You surf a lot. Right. You wear loose clothing. You wear summer dresses. You wear casual pants. <laughs> well, like, Naya looks like she's dressed appropriately. Yeah. It, yeah. She does. She looks great. Um. So, we've already talked about the musical themes. Now yeah. we have to rank the directors. <sighs> I mean, it's easy for me. You're, you're taking your time here. I didn't like Mission. Like, I give it a 6 out of 10 Mission Impossible, the first one. And so, because I love Mission Impossible 2 so much, like John Woo, he's the better director. I am so torn on this. I'm, I'm going to address both questions at once. Okay. Better directorial fit and better movie. Okay. There is no question in my mind that I think this movie 
is vastly superior to Mission Impossible 1. Mm -hmm. I would sit down right now and rewatch Mission Impossible 2, having just watched it, whereas to watch Mission Impossible 1 again would feel like homework. A chore. Mission Impossible 2 is a better movie. Mm -hmm. I think this is maybe a bad Mission Impossible movie. It is missing a lot of the stuff I like out of Mission Impossible movies. Okay, so counter question. The stuff that you like out of Mission Impossible movies, are those in the later films? Yes. I think you see, and this will be interesting to confirm on the rewatch, that when J.J. Abrams comes in on number three, he sets sort of a house style. Mm -hmm. And Brad Bird and Chris McQuarrie bring their own thing to it, but they keep a certain style consistent throughout. Okay. And I think there's more of that style in Mission Impossible 1 than there is in Mission Impossible 2. I think if you had to make a list of common elements between these films, Mission Impossible 2 would only have a couple in them. So I don't know how to rank this. I really don't. Well, okay. So if we are seriously thinking about this, I am not doubting the directorial abilities of either Brian De Palma or John Woo. There, every single person who directed on this series has done amazing stuff outside of it. They've no got one, an excellent resume. No, like, no one, none of them need to be upset by two Canadian bloggers, <laughs> two, two Canadian podcasters <laughs> questioning their work on Mission Impossible. So I, I'm not worried about yeah. that. I will say that having learned that the first cut, the, the director's cut of this movie was over three hours long and there are some plot holes and inconsistencies in the movie, um, Mission Impossible 2, which I think are a result of cuts having to be made. Maybe in the end, John Woo is not, he is the worst director in that he wasn't able to execute his vision the way he wanted to. He had to bow down to studio yeah, pressure. He also, I think, is the only one that Tom Cruise didn't like working with. There was a clash yeah, with he, producer and star there, which, you know, maybe maybe that's because of his integrity as a director, but either way, clearly didn't fit with the series the way the other directors did. Yeah, and... John Woo probably didn't want to come back anyways. He was probably stressed the whole time that he was right. going to kill Tom Cruise. Yeah, I, 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 like, I don't even think he was that. I think it was a mutual understanding. Of yeah, like, so like, we'll we're just done. never see each other Yeah, again, okay, right? cool. Right. We made a thing. High five. So I Bye. think John Woo goes at the bottom as far as directorial fit. I don't know how to rank these two movies. I honestly don't. See, now that we've had this discussion, I think maybe, so I think Brian De Palma made the movie he wanted to make. Yeah. Mostly. Yes. I think John Woo perhaps is a little sad that he didn't put into the world the movie that he had in mind. Right. So for that reason, I think the better movie is Mission Impossible 2. Okay. But the better director perhaps is Brian De Palma. Okay. I'm going to go with that. I'm going to also enter my ranking this week as Mission Impossible 2 is number one. Mission Impossible 1 is number two. <laughs> and then I reserve the right to change this in following weeks if I... Uh, yeah, of if, course. If I feel I have to change, we it. learn, we change. It's the sign of intelligence to be able to form new opinions. Yep. Okay. Are, do we have any other questions? Is that is that it? No, I think that's it. Um, we covered all the things. Uh, there are some things that maybe we will talk about in future episodes, but. The year is 2000. Jurassic 2 is out in the world and Jurassic yes. 3 is being made. We're a year away from the first Fast and the Furious. So so we wanted to talk about this. 
now that we're at Mission Impossible 2, we're at an actual series. This isn't a one-off. Mm-hmm. So can we look at this compared to other series? Yeah. I'm excited. So, so, so what, sorry, what did you, I, I totally missed that. Where, where's Jurassic Park right now? Jurassic Park, uh, the second movie is out in the world. I think it's been out for two to three years at this point. And the third one is in production. Interesting. Where do you stand on Jurassic Park 2? I remember strongly disliking it, but here's the thing. I had no memory of Mission Impossible 2, and I loved it. So <laughs> maybe I need to go back and rewatch those movies. Fair enough. My 10-second uh, take on Jurassic Park 2, uh, bad movie for most of it, but the scene where a T-Rex is loose in San Diego is much better than people remember. It's a lot of fun. Wait, now I have to go back and rewatch it, especially like Jurassic World. That I thought that was the first time the dinosaurs were... Sorry, spoilers. <laughs> Uh, no spoilers yeah okay we're getting off topic but mission impossible 2 amazing if this hasn't inspired you to go rewatch it go rewatch it go rewatch it okay well on that note (laughs) spank me luther spank me luther and uh we will be back next week talking about mission impossible 3 i'm excited until then this is kim this is billy mission accomplished Thanks so much for listening. And thanks as always to Aaron Kosser for our awesome logo. New episodes will be dropping every Thursday starting November 15th. If you like us, please rate, review, and subscribe. And, you know, tell a friend or two. And if you really like us, please visit patreon.com slash Talk for exclusive content, including our upcoming holiday extravaganza. I feel like I'm not breathing excellent. right. Like it I was excellent. Like I running out of air. Trust me, that one was perfect. Uh. We're good. I'm going to do the last one, and then we can never return to this okay. horrible exercise ever again. <laughs> okay. Until we have to record the next one. But at over. least then yeah. we're doing it like that, you know? Yeah. It is hard to get your breath. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, people do go to college for this, so, like, I guess it is a little unfair for us to just be like, I just know how to do it. You know? Yeah. Yeah.